Hi, everyone. Unfortunately, we must again begin the show paying tribute to some beloved, remarkably talented actors working in the anime industry in the world of voice acting that has sadly passed away recently. We lost two pretty remarkable talents in the same week, which is quite tragic. And to start off, we'll mention that Jim White passed away on June 4th of lung cancer at the age of 73. He had a long career before getting into voice acting, you know, as a morning news anchor at a lot of uh, local radio stations. He had his own radio program, The Restaurant Show with Jim White. But anime fans will know him as Igneal and the narrator in Fairy Tale. He was Z's grandfather in Attack of Titan, Lao G in One Piece. Later on in life, he really got a second win playing, you know, a lot of more elderly characters, but quite remarkable characters in a lot of different shows. And it's very sad to hear that he has passed away. And it is especially sad to know that someone so young as our next person passed away at the age they did. And that is Billy Kometz. Billy Kometz, unfortunately, passed away on June 9th of colon cancer at the age of 35. And Kometz, of course, was Josuke in Diamonds Unbreakable. He was Gallo in Premiere. He was the Rotom Pokedex in Pokemon Sun and Moon, Rui in Demon Slayer, the White Bloodstone Souls of Work. A lot of really remarkable characters. Quite a range, but especially in his roles as heroic characters like Josuke and Gallo, he really shined and brought so much energy and enthusiasm. And there has been so much outpouring of love and stories about Kamets in the news of his passing from his fellow actors in the industry who just praise him as just one of the kindest, most jovial people who could always strike bright in upper room. It's just so enthusiastic and kind. It's just so heartbreaking to hear just someone so genuinely wonderful and so incredibly talented passed away at such a young age because of cancer. Both Kemets and White passed away because of cancer in different forms and that's really really saddening. But I just am really stricken by this news of both of these people passing away in the way they did. They portrayed some really great characters and roles, and they seemed just like wonderful people to everyone who knew them. And cancer really just is such a curse, and it just, just makes me so sad to see it take the lives of just some incredible people. But we wanted to just pay our respects to them, and the lives they lived and the work that they've done that touched so many people um, and all the family and their friends that these wonderful people, you know, really touched in their lives and just pay a moment of respect towards them, a moment of silence just to honor their memory.
This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast, episode 205. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lomromayasha, and today we have a lot of new series to cover in our latest Simulpub Roundup. We're talking about the latest batch of new Shonen Jump series and one-shots, some new additions to Manga Plus, including a long-awaited edition of one of the most popular manga just in general that I've been running in the past couple years that has finally been licensed and made available to read on Manga Plus. And, of course, we are so excited to talk about Oski getting into the exclusive Simulpo game with their new series... Hikaru in the Light. So a lot of really exciting titles to talk about on this episode. But first, we do have some news to go over, just some serialization news updates that we felt were a little timely and worth bringing up on this podcast ahead of our next news episode, especially since the first couple of these are jump related. But on the subject of Oshinoko, we'll just mention right out that yes, Oshinoko is getting an anime. So it's addition to Manga Plus, quite well-timed, I would say. And yes, Dogotobo will be doing the adaptation. It'll be directed by Daisuke Hiramaki and Chako Nekotomi. And series composition will be handled by Jin Tanaka. And Kana Hirayama, designer of Tukufen, is designing the characters. So we can probably expect this adaptation to come next year-ish. But yeah, it is no surprise that Oshinoko would get an anime relatively quickly into its run. It's only been running a little over two years. But it's such a reputable series. And I've just heard so much raving about it that, yeah, it was inevitable that it would get an adaptation. And Okobo seems like a good student a good fit for it. They have done a lot of like really stand up kind of romantic comedy works mostly but they've dabbled in a lot of other things too. You know, Oshinoko is more of a drama but in terms of their aesthetic and style I think that Dogokobo can do a really good job on them. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing what the wider reception to an Oshinoko anime is going to be like when that eventually premieres. Yeah. Especially because the series, and we'll talk about it, it sort of changes premise a few chapters in. So it's an interesting title, though. I think, you know, it's already quite beloved in the sphere of manga fan, and I think it's going to be a pretty big hit as an anime. And Dogakobo is very... Generally, their shows are very bright and poppy, so I think that fits the general feel of Oshinoko very well, even though Oshinoko also has its dark side, as we'll get into as well. But speaking of anime things, you know, Dr. Stone, the manga, left us earlier this year, but the anime is still going strong, and it has its new Ryuzui special that it's coming out this summer, and in fact, if we know now when it's coming out, it'll be on July 10th, and in addition to that, a week before, we will be getting a new special chapter of Dr. Stone to tie in with the special, presumably also reusely focused, maybe a, more of an epilogue to him. Uh, so yeah, that is basically what we can expect. You know, the preview for the reusely special is out, looks pretty good. So yeah, I mean, I think that it's interesting that they have just an entire special dedicated to the introduction of Ryusui character, but he is such a popular character that I suppose it makes sense. And also probably they need some extra time before they do a proper third season. So this is a way to give fans, you know, something to tide them over before that's properly ready. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking forward to this new bonus chapter of Dr. Stone, and I'm sure 
when we can find the time, we'll we'll probably set aside some time to talk about it on an upcoming episode eventually. For sure. Now, speaking of Shonen Jump serialization stuff, we've got a big one to talk about here because One Piece, you know, it has been on the schedule where it runs a few chapters, about three chapters and takes a break and stuff like that. So it's not unusual for One Piece to take short breaks, but it is rarely taken a very long break. But that's about to happen because One Piece is going to be taking a month long break between Shonen Jump issues 30s through 33, basically from the 20th. 26th to the 17th, June 26th to July 17th, it'll resume in issue 34 of Shonen Jump, which will be out in Japan Monday, July 25th, uh, for us, like Sunday, July 24th. So this is significant because this is the first month-long break in serialization that Oda has taken on One Piece since the time skip over 10 years ago, or basically 10 years ago oh. which is uh, incredible <laughs> that he kept up such an arduous publication schedule even though yes he's taken more breaks in recent years after every couple of chapters he takes a week off but you know a full month on break just to rest from the sterilization is something that he has not done in a while so it's a big moment because that was a big thing for One Piece to do in between the time skip it was like you know this is a huge turning point for the series narratively so it makes sense to have a break from it the same is true here because you know, Oda is taking this break in preparation to return for the final arc, final saga of the series that will basically begin as soon as the manga returns in July. And that's another big thing. It's like One Piece is officially going to be entering its final arc. Wano is basically over. So, you know, One Piece's final arc, who knows how long that'll actually be. But this is a big big milestone for it to reach and it's a crazy thing to think about like how far we have come in this series how much relatively is left to go and also how incredible Oda's publication schedule has been and how dedicated he has been to not have taken a long break until now since the last time he did it this is only the second of two month long breaks he's ever taken on this series, which is just incredible for the amount of work he puts into this series. Like, and especially in comparison to like other authors who have been taking breaks to go on, you know, for multiple long breaks. And I think Oda definitely deserves to take a multiple month long break instead of a month long break. But he seems very committed and very eager to begin on the final arc. So, you know, I'm definitely, definitely keen to see what he has in store for that. And of course, this is a very very big time for One Piece, obviously with Film Red coming to theaters in August and the manga's 25th anniversaries in July. So, you know, this timing also works well in that is that it'll be returning right when the manga reaches its 25th anniversary, like when One Piece comes back from site So it's actually well, well timed that way. And of course, you know, the live action show is currently filming in Africa and stuff. So a lot of big things are happening with One Piece right now. As soon as you said it's been 10 years since the start of the time skip, I immediately started withering in the dust. I was in high school when that happened. Uh, <laughs> oh boy. Um, I'm even more kind of in shock that like that one piece is on its way out. I mean, again, it's probably going to take multiple years for this to actually happen. But but to know that like, oh, he's getting ready to like, act, like, like one piece is on its way out eventually. And it, it might be, it's still going to take a while, I think, but it's still coming sooner than I think we realize also at the same time, which is... 
Yeah. Which is a really weird feeling. I don't really expect One Piece to end for a couple of years yet, but to know that it is in its final act as a story is still quite a milestone. It feels like a big event, this final arc. So it's going to be curious to see what Oda is going to bring to it, because there's a lot of weight behind it. He has said before that the final act of this series is going to make the Paramount War look like nothing in comparison, so I really hope he lives up to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are so many different characters and fashions, you know. The, the scale of the final arc, you can already imagine, is going to be pretty huge. So I can definitely... I mean, Wano pretty much kind of is greater than scale than the Paramount War. So he has to now top Wano, and I'm going to be like, well, how? Well, you know, I I can see how when I think about everything that has to go into the final arc, but it's still going to be an incredible thing to witness and follow along with. I haven't been keeping up weekly in about like two or three years at this point because I just wasn't really in the mood to read Wano week to week, as I'm sure listeners may know. Um, I'm debating whether I should pick it back up again now that Wano's over because I... A part of me does kind of want to keep up with the series week to week at some point before it ends, but I don't know. That's something I'm going to have to figure out on my own. Yeah, I mean, you might as well catch up with the Wano arc now that it is officially over and see if you are still interested in keeping up with weekly One Piece pacing. Like, I feel like the arc itself, you know, it is very big in scale, and that is both a strength and detriment of it. So, I mean, I, I'm... Hoping that One Piece's final arc both doesn't feel overstuffed and also feel rushed, you know, because I can just imagine there's so much to do, but I also feel like, you know, One Piece has this problem of like, it feels like it's moving too slow, and then sometimes it feels like, wait, too much is happening, so. I genuinely think the only thing holding back One Piece at this point is Oda's own mortality. Like, I'm sure he still enjoys doing the series, but I imagine there's a part of him that thinks like, man, I can't just do this for literally the rest of my life, you know? Yeah, uh, I mean, he already pretty much seems to have given up on, like, doing anything he kind of put all of his ideas into One Piece. He basically has admitted that it's like, you know, I had all these other ideas, but like, I just decided to put this all into One Piece, essentially. But like, he does feel like, okay, it seems like he really does want to get to the end sooner than later in relative terms. Like the way he phrased this announcement was like, you know, I'm taking a rest so that I can work on the final arc, uh, basically as fast as I possibly can, you know, by taking a rest or planning it out and stuff like that. So, you know, we will see ultimately how long the final arc ends up being and, you know, whether Oda, the culmination of One Piece, does have the creative energy to create something else after it, which would be quite incredible. I mean, just on One Piece alone, he doesn't have to. It's just something he'd be doing out of just the love of drawing and creativity, so... If Oda never wanted to draw another comic again after One Piece ended, I'd understand. Yeah. 100%. Like, he, he he deserves a nice long break after the series ends. Yeah, and hopefully he takes it. He's quite the workaholic. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I, I look, no matter how I feel about One Piece currently, and trust me, I feel very mixed on One Piece nowadays... I'm probably going to cry when it ends. That's that's going to be such a huge moment in our lifetime that I just, it, it's, it's just hard for me to fathom like what that's going to be like. Yeah, it's definitely going to feel like 
wow, this is a big part of my life that uh, is kind of just over now. You know, One Piece has been running as long as most of us have been alive. We've been Jump! following it for at least 15 years plus, oh, yeah. uh, personally. So, you know, it's going to be like a big moment, a big deal for One Piece to be over because this is like, you know, just been an omnipresent thing that One Piece is always running. It's always going to be around, you know. But eventually it will end. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of things like that, you know, like The Simpsons and other stuff, and you know, that you kind of just expect, oh, it's always going to be there. But, you know, eventually these, these things are probably going to end uh, or at least stop for a bit. And you're going to be like, oh, man, this is just over now. This thing that I could rely on that's always going to be there is just gone. It's, it's going to be a sad little thing, but, you know. Life goes on, and ultimately, it is something that you can appreciate just having been on the journey and been able to appreciate for all the time you were able to spend with it. The Simpsons is an interesting thing to bring up, because I don't know if Disney will ever let that end, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of, like, political or, like, kind of financial reasons I could see for The Simpsons potentially ending or stopping and rebuting that Disney, I could see them doing, you know, because the actors are getting older and all that stuff. So, you know, are you going to really continue to show in the same way when Castellaneta or Cartwright ultimately pass away and stuff like that? I don't know. I feel like The Simpsons does have an expiration date. And also, season 34 is coming, but they have not yet announced any more seasons after that. So uh, they're kind of coming down to the wire. So, you know, that's just that's just the whole thing of like, hmm, well, what is Disney's ultimate long term thing? Because like as a franchise, Obviously, something like The Simpsons or something like One Piece is not going to end. But like, is the original thing, is the original run of it going to end or come to a stopping point? That's something that, you know, I am very curious about. Mm hmm. And similarly, you know, that kind of brings us to our next thing. Like sometimes things come to a stopping point or an end, but then they can be continued on in kind of a new direction or a new spirit. And that is what is happening with Berserk, which, you know, Kentaro Miura sadly passed away over a year ago. And since then, you know, Hakusensha, Gaga have kind of been deliberating over what the future of Berserk will be, whether the serialization will continue or whether it will stop where Miura had drawn up to. And recently they have made the announcement that Studio Gaga, under the supervision of Miura's longtime friend and fellow manga artist Koji Mura, who is known for Holy Land and many other series, they are going to conclude the current Fantasia arc with six more chapters, and then they will begin a new arc afterward. And they are basically following what Miura had told them about the direction of the story, all the plot details that Miura had told them and told Mori especially personally. They're going to follow along that basic outline that Miura has left behind for them, all the way up to draw a conclusion and ending to Berserk. And I mean, the fact that they, you know, deliberate on this for a year, I think shows that it was not like, you know, easy to see. I mean, they also, with six chapters planned to come out, they have probably been working on it for a bit. But it's clear that, you know, this was, you know, not an easy decision to make. But I think they ultimately have come to feel like they feel Miura would have given his blessing. Miura wouldn't have wanted Guts' story to end or just stop, but reach the ending that he had planned 
stand out. And Mori, having been such a longtime friend of Miura's and having been confided in about the story of Berserk, the destination it's supposed to reach in its ending, it seems like he is the proper steward to guide the Ryogaka team to continue on Berserk and guts the story until that ending. So, yeah, and I mean, he, in the announcement, like, they assured readers, they say that, like, yeah, we know that the telling is going to be imperfect. It's not going to be Berserk the way Kentaro Miura had planned to write it, necessarily. It wouldn't be the way that he would have written it or drawn it himself. It is them following on, like, the spirit of what he would have done. It'll be imperfect in that way, but they think they can almost tell that story. They can almost tell the story that Mira wanted to tell. So what's remarkable about this announcement to me is, you know, both the commitment from Mori and Gaga to stay true to the spirit of Mira's work, but also the reaction from the fan base, which I have seen to be pretty overwhelmingly positive and in support of this. That's good, you know, yeah. The earnestness of this announcement uh, and the respect and careful consideration that's gone into it, I think has assured fans and made them feel comfortable with the story continuing in this way. At most, I have seen just some people have kind of somewhat mixed feelings, you know, knowing that, you know, isn't it going to be the same Berserk in the same way of, as Katara Miura would have drawn it, but they don't feel like it is wrong for the story to continue in this way either. You know, at, I think someone I saw praised it well. It's like, you know, even if it doesn't turn out to be the most satisfying, it will not diminish the work and legacy Katara Miura had already put into Berserk and the story he had written up to the point where it ended up stopping. So, you know, I think it's remarkably... I have seen a lot of mature and healthy and supportive, enthusiastic reactions from fans towards this announcement. And I am in the same boat. I think that, you know, there's been a lot of care put into this decision. They are trying to stay true to Mira's spirit and true to the story he would have told. And they are know that they can't quite do it the same way without Mira, but they are going to try to not deviate from his words, as they have quoted. They're going to try and stick to the spirit of what he has left behind for them. And this is a way, in, in many respects, for them to kind of honor their mentor and their friend that has meant so much to them by continuing on his work and seeing it through to the end, which I think is just a very sweet sentiment. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about, you know, a couple times on the podcast here and there about how we felt about a possible continuation of Berserk. And, you know, just me personally, you know, I've mentioned how on the fence I would be about the possibility of even like thinking about trying to continue Berserk after the passing of Miura. But, you know, it's it's like you said, I think I think the statement from Mori and basically everyone at Studio Gaga and Hakusensha it makes me feel like they're continuing Berserk because they actually care about the story and not just because like, you know, I'm sure Berserk is still pretty lucrative from them for them. And I'm sure they probably want some money out of it or whatever. Hakusensha specifically, they're not going to say no to more money. Obviously, they're a company, but at least on Mori's end and the people at Studio Gaga, like I feel like they want to just get Mira's story out there. And I find that really like commendable and respectable. Like they're, they've been very like transparent, like you said, like, oh, we know it's probably not going to be as good as like what Mior himself would write if he were alive, but I'm open to seeing how they're going to tackle an ending to Berserk. And yeah, I'm just, I'm open to what they can do. And yeah, I'm, I'm actually like pretty excited to see how this will turn out. 
Because I, I, I can't imagine, like, I'm not automatically thinking it's going to be bad. Like, I'm actually more excited than I am worried at this point about the future of Berserk. And that's not a feeling I thought I would feel after hearing about a continuation of the series, which I think is nice. And Studio Gaga was working on Berserk in its later years. So much of Berserk is as much their work as it is Miura's. And so they have just as much artistic kind of right to take ownership of it and to continue it in his spirit, I would say. Mm -hmm. And hey, you know what? If Berserk ends up ending in a way that isn't satisfying to you, that's fine. You know, like the, the good thing about this, I think, is that there's still a good... Berserk ended, from what I hear, ended on a good enough ending point to where like if people wanted to consider that the ending of Berserk, they could. Yeah, it ended on a kind of bittersweet note, but a note that had some degree of closure to some long-standing things in Guts' journey. So you could appreciate that as a stopping point for the story. Yeah, whatever comes after this doesn't have to ruin what came before it, and I think that's good. Mm -hmm. But that about does it for the serialization updates we wanted to give for this episode, and of course we'll have undoubtedly much more news to cover in the next episode, including hopefully finally we will get to all those lists and polls that have been eluding us for the past couple of months that we've been meaning to get around to. But we are now turning our attention to something else that we've been meaning to get around to for a little bit our coverage of a lot of recent new simulpubs that have been available on Shonen Jump and Manga Plus and now recently on Ozki. And let's start off with some one-shots or rather bonus chapters that have been published recently on Shonen Jump as epilogues to Weary Beloved series. And we'll start off with a special haiku bonus chapter that was published in commemoration of the manga's 10th anniversary. You know, a little uh, delayed from that, but essentially for that. And uh, there, I won't dwell too much on this one because Colton also didn't read it and stuff like that. But, you know, basically the idea of this one is it's a big celebration of the series. You know, we're checking in with all our favorite characters. The idea is Tetsuo Kuro. You know, he's a promoter now uh, for Japan's Volleyball Association. So he basically comes up with this idea to hold a promotional game featuring a bunch of his old rivals who are, you know, professional volleyball players across the world. So we follow him in the chapter as he go around the world and he recruits Akawa, Nishijima, Kageyama, Joff, and finally Hinata and Brazil. And then we flash forward to everyone, you know, kind of uh, coming together for the game. We see other characters on the team. We see other characters, you know, checking on them where they are in their lives, you know, especially characters who are like, doing volleyball and stuff and you know we just you know are, are checking in our, our favorite characters seeing what they're doing right now you know and there are a lot of cute highlights the main highlight for me was just seeing Hinata collab with Kenma and Kenma's you know a YouTuber now and so like they're playing a volleyball game the live streaming volleyball game on his YouTube channel uh so I thought that was nice and Hinata was doing it with his old uh Brazilian pal Pedro as well which is nice and uh ultimately I just like the ultimate message of the chapter you know which kind of gets to the heart of what the series is all about. 
basically puts it in very good words. Like, the series was not about life or death stakes. It's not about saving lives, a world, or vanquishing evil. It's just about a bunch of volleyball enthusiasts who like to play the game and watch the game and are connected by that passion for volleyball. And they've carried it with them through to their adult lives and their careers, regardless of whether they're still playing volleyball themselves. And, you know, it's just a nice sentiment. And, you know, I think that it's just a sweet chapter to just, you know, just check in on all these characters again. And I really do just like the final message of it all. It was like, yeah, no, the Haikyuu is it's not about like these necessarily big stakes that the characters are putting on the shoulder. It's just about a bunch of these characters who really had a lot of fun and enjoyed playing volleyball and are just connected to that passion. And yeah, I think that's very sweet. Mm, that's nice to hear. Um, just to put it out there, I didn't read this chapter just because I'm currently trying to read through all of Haikyuu because uh, we're going to hopefully do an episode on it sometime this year. Um, but definitely when I get around to finishing Haikyuu, I will be checking this out. I did kind of like skim through it a little bit just because I was kind of curious. Um, I really like the way it ended where like it kind of transitioned from black and white into color. I thought that was a really, really neat effect. It was interesting, for sure, that, like, in the middle of, like, a two-page spread, we kind of get the left half screened into color. It's not like a completely, like, artful transition. It just seems like half of the page was done in color and half was not. But still, I do like that kind of transition into it for the final pages to see them in color. And it's a good spread. And the scene of, you know, Kageyama and Hata shaking hands is also a very good image that I like a lot, too. Mm-hmm. So... I can't wait to read that when I'm finished with Haikyuu, but um, I think we can move on to our next bonus chapter. Yes, yeah, so Magu-chan also had a very nice bonus chapter, which, as had been speculated upon, was indeed about Ren. It was a chicken on Ren, and basically the premise of this one is that Ren is told by Yupi Susu that if he never confesses his feelings to Ruru, she's going to marry someone else, and he'll live and die alone, forever pining for her. So this motivates him to finally try and actually work up the courage to confess his feelings, but he gives up, basically, when he sees Ruru on a date at the mall with Izumo, or at least he thinks he sees that. It's actually Sarah who has transformed Izumo to try and figure out what kind of clothes to fit him as she and Ruru are shopping uh, together. But, you know, he basically kind of bowls over and starts spewing blood and gives up on life at that moment. And meanwhile, Nakotako has been given coupons as a reward for all the work he and Ren have been doing. And he tries to hold all these coupons for himself rather than give Ren his half. And that upsets his hermit crab minions who like leave him behind at a mall. So when he goes searching for them to apologize, he finds Ren and misunderstands like Ren saying he's giving up as like him dying. And so in his despair, he lets out a frenzied roar that rejuvenates Ren and makes him more confident and able to approach Ruru. However, the frenzy roar control runs out right as he he's about to confess, but he ends up mustering up the courage anyway to just <laughs> tell Ruru he likes her out of his own free will. And Ruru up until this point had not really considered Ren, you know, in that way, or thought that Ren taught of her in that way, because he had, like, you know, more amazing women in his life, like his sister, and she just thought of him as a friend that was always going to be there for her, someone, you know, she could always rely on. But, you know, she's clearly frustrated <laughs> by Ren's uh, confession. 
fashion. And so the chapter kind of just ends, you know, leaving the fate of their future relationship up in the air. You know, it's not a dismissal of like, oh, no, it's it, it can't happen now. But now it's like, oh, well, now maybe there's a possibility because Ren worked up the courage to change fate by finally actually confessing his feelings to Guru. So I thought it was just a sweet chapter. It's a, a little more development closure to Ren's character. You know, a good Naputako moment with his frenzied roar. So yeah, quite quaint. It's not a ton of closure necessarily. It's like open-ended in terms of like the future of these characters' relationships. But it's a sweet check-in on them. And a little bit more development to Ren's character than he had towards the end of the story where he's kind of not as much in the focus. Yeah, I'm I'm a bit mixed on this one because I thought it was like fine. I didn't like hate it or anything, but I won't lie. A part of me was kind of hoping we would get like an actual epilogue taking place, like I guess in that time skip that happened near the end of the series, which maybe that was unrealistic of me. I don't know. That's kind of what I was hoping for. But I guess in terms of what we got, like, again, I I thought it was fine. If anything, I was actually kind of excited for it at first when I started reading it, because I was like, ooh, we're going to get like an extra Napataku story. And, you know, he he has his part to play, obviously. He's not like, he's not an insignificant part of the story, but I'm I'm not going to lie. Like, I don't like hate Ren or anything, but he's kind of the character that like, I care about the least out of anyone in the series so like kind of reading through him like trying to work through his emotions just wasn't something I was like very deeply interested in like Ren's feelings towards Ruru and that like kind of one-sided love that he has like honestly was like the thing I was like the least completely one-sided as we've Learn in this chapter, it's just like we're just ne- never, you know, kind of entertained the possibility that Ren would ever actually, you know, think of her that way. She just saw, oh, Ren is just like a supportive friend to me. And she kind of dismissed the possibility of like, you know, ever actually having feelings for him or him having feelings for her outright. And so him confessing his feelings for her is like, oh, that, that kind of rattles her a bit. And it's- because you kind of dismiss that possibility. I'm just saying this was still like the least interesting thing about the series to me. So I wasn't really totally excited to like get closure on, on something that I wasn't really interested in, in the first place. But that that's just me personally. Yeah, I also find Ren to be one of the most least interesting characters in the main cast. So I definitely can understand that point. I, I Ultimately, I did like the chapter because I feel that this did give some more stuff for Ren to actually do. That was, you know, I, I think that his conflict in this was portrayed very humorously of like, oh, if he never <laughs> confesses, he's going to just grow up like alone forever pining for her. And then that being a motivating thing. And then there's just funny overreaction moments of him like crying, coughing up blood and stuff. Those were funny, yeah. And I appreciate that he did have a moment of development where he actually did just outright tell her that he liked her. So I just appreciate that Hey, they finally, they took this character who kind of had stagnated in the series in terms of, you know, any character growth and just being stuck in a straight man role and kind of gave him some good development in an appreciable way, I found. Mm-hmm. Um, again, overall, it, it was a fine bonus thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have much more to say about it myself other than, you know, I am still sad that Magu ended because this chapter just made me... Remember, ah, uh, you know, I would have enjoyed continuing to read more manga stories and seeing where all this stuff would have gone if there were going to be more chapters and stuff like that. 
I would actually love it if I I don't know if this will ever happen. It probably won't, but I would not mind like an extra chapter of Magu-chan like every once in a while because I think this is the kind of series where you could kind of get away with like revisiting it every once in a while for like you know small shorter stories you know that are more self-contained. Like if you want if you wanted to go back to the well of Magu-chan every once in a while, you could. Like I I would not say no to more bonus Magu-chan material. Is all I'm saying. For sure. And perhaps Kamiki can just retool and just make a Naputaku focus series instead. And that, you know, Nakutaku going on his, like, cooking uh, spree adventures, his journey to set up, you know, his own mad cafe. You know, make that a manga. And I wonder if you'll find even more success with that. Because Naputaku was by Country Mile, the most popular character in the series uh, from the character popularity poll. So, you know, maybe you could have some momentum there. I'm just saying, you know, I, I always could use more of our favorite man. Son. Just just make a Naputaku centered series and then it just slowly transitions into being like Maguchan 2. I don't even care if the other characters show up. Just <laughs> more Naputaku. That's and his hermit crabs. That's all we need. At least a mini series would be nice. The others can show up once in a while. <laughs> uh, whenever Naputaku's not on screen, everybody should be asking, where's Naputaku? Yes, they should. Huh. But I think we should get on to our latest batch of Jump series, though. Yes, and we'll start off with one that kind of debuted isolation back in early May, and that was Super Smartphone by Hiroki Tomisawa and Kentaro Hidano. And basically, this series is sort of Death Note, but with smartphones in a way. It's basically kind of like a survival game. Not a survival game type series, but basically the idea is that there are a bunch of people who are being given these special Google Goo smartphones. You know, very <laughs> no, totally not Google, just just off brand with the logo very reminiscent of the Google logo. You know, t- totally totally legally separate. It's weird because Google exists in this world though. It does exist, so I, how do, are they avoiding copyright? Maybe it's just because it's secretive, you know? I, but I, 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 I would not be surprised if the real Google in, the, in this world would sue. Probably, yeah. But regardless, you know, basically a bunch of these smartphones, which have the ability, have a lot of, you know, special abilities to like, you know, search for things uh, and look up things and stuff like that through their search engine applications are being distributed to a lot of different people, including our protagonist, who is called Q. So his nickname is the letter Q. Uh, but basically, Q's whole deal is that he's a super genius, but he doesn't apply himself in class because of a traumatic incident in his childhood where his little brother Shu went missing and presumably was kidnapped during a game of hide and seek. And in the aftermath of that, he was like, I thought science was all knowing, but he can't even find my little brother and so that explains why he doesn't try anymore and doesn't like put much stock in applying himself at school and his intelligence stuff but he ends up getting one of the super smartphones it's just in his bag and he starts playing around with it and he realizes oh this has a lot of potential to like find things just really specifically and it has a lot of untapped potential but it also has a point system and then he kind of pretty immediately deduces that oh these were given to me to earn points to compete against other people who have these super smartphones and stuff like that so in the first
first couple chapters, he uses it to solve like a few different crimes. Like he helps identify and rescue a little girl who was kidnapped. Then he kind of uses it to spy on like his classmates' text conversations. And he ends up kind of foiling like a high rise invasion takeover attempt and rescuing his friends in the process. And that's when he realizes that, oh, the other smartphone, there was another smartphone user who was responsible for this invasion situation. And so that kind of introduces us to presumably one of the weed villains who I don't doubt is like this this whole thing is like oh like the person who's behind this high-rise event and then the person who probably kidnapped Shu like the reason that I was given the smartphone but the reason why I can't use the smartphone to actually look for Shu is because that information is being kept confidential and there's some sort of connection between the super smartphones and Shu's disappearance and then also one of the smartphone users is the person who kidnapped Shu and whatnot and so he thinks that the guy behind the high-rise thing may be that guy and we know we learn who that guy is it's Zenichiro who is like the chairman of the, this big financial tech company who like really makes other people just intimidates them into like being subservient to him in this very creepy cultish workplace culture and then in their conflict they end up getting and roping in like this police officer who is kind of suspicious about the high-rise case and the fact that you know someone orchestrated it through special means called Nagi who is like one of those so-called mythical good cops who's like you know really believes in police officers roles for injustice and so she ends up noticing Q and Zenichiro like having kind of a email conversation in her own email account and then she ends up uh, being contacted by Q to kind of collaborate closely. Q tries to gain her trust to gain like her side in the conflict against uh, Zenichiro and stuff. So it's, it's a battle of wits kind of thing between these people with super smartphones who can use them to like search for things and play information warfare and whatnot. So it has like a lot of interesting kind of deducing type things in that way, kind of psychological mind gaming elements in that way, like trying to psych out someone else, like in the high rise situation where Q looks up a bunch of things about like the people who are committing the assault and the evasion to like kind of freak them out and think that he's like working for the same boss and he knows their identities and stuff like that. But uh, I think the main weakness of it is just that the character of Q is just not that interesting. He's very lackadaisical. Yeah. He's not very passionate about anything at the start. So, you know, he kind of just through curiosity, but just like unenthusiastic curiosity, it's like learning stuff about the smartphone. He starts to get a little invested at the idea of like finding his rudder and stuff. But, you know, he's not a super compelling character because he is so much like kind of a calm, collected bystander to everything and almost too rational to a fault where it's like, well, he doesn't have too many like truly endearing qualities about him and like super endearing relationships with other characters like his you know childhood friend he seems to care about him but we don't have like a super good sense of like how much he actually cares I mean he goes to rescue her and stuff but like you know it's not a big interesting dynamic there of like oh this is a person he really cares about and stuff like that you know so that's a big weakness and so there's potential for some of these characters to be interesting they're like Zenichiro is kind of makes an interesting impression as a villain because of you know how creepy his workplace culture is and how like reverent his employees are them and how he basically like kind of intimidates uh, new hires into submission and then Nagi you can sort of feel for her she has a 
fun enough design, fun enough sass to the other police officers in her department and stuff like that. But uh, so far, it's like the potential, like the premise of it has like the potential to be interesting, but the character writing is holding it back from being like that compelling. Mm. Yeah, you know, um, for, for those who haven't listened to our 200th episode, I mean, you should, by the way, it was a good one. I made a bet that this series wouldn't last past 13 chapters. And I gotta be honest, I'm almost kind of regretting that bet because I'm starting to feel like I weirdly actually think this series could have some legs like Originally, I was under the impression that this was just going to be like a... I thought this series was going to be more Detective Conan in nature, where it would be more episodic until we kind of built up to a bigger mystery. But it, like you said, this is a lot more Death Note in nature, where like a kid gets this like fantastic device that like has a lot of rules attached to it so that like you don't use it in the wrong way, perhaps. Honestly, I would... This is kind of like if Death Note were more like Future Diary, and where like Future Diary was a series where like all these characters were put in the middle of like sort of death game-ish kind of thing where like you would have to find you know other like smart uh, like you know flip phone users in that case um and they would get directions through there so it's kind it's kind of similar in that way um and i i kind of dig it like i wasn't i wasn't expecting this to be like like a multiple person game kind of thing you know um so i am a little bit more interested knowing that this isn't like just an episodic mystery series because going into it thinking that that's what was going to be like i didn't have very much faith that this was going to work but i i do appreciate the series going out of its way to like try to establish like some kind of rules in order to make this work like th this series so far seems to have more thought put into it than I thought there was going to be. So I'm I'm at least appreciative of that. Um, I also want to say that Zenichiro, the thought just occurred to me. He kind of reminds me of um of Asano from Assassination Classroom, where he's also like yeah. this this super opposing figure that like uses his dominance and charisma to like control people and basically make them do whatever he wants and and has to bend to his whims. He does kind of remind me of that character in a way. He's kind of similar, except he's maybe he's just as demonic. I don't know. I guess we'll see. But yeah, I mean, so far, this series is a lot more interesting than I thought it was going to be. But I don't know. I'm not like in love with it, but I do kind of want to see where it goes. I, I will give it that. Yeah, I can gel with that. Like, I do appreciate that there's a lot of talk put into the rules of the smartphone uh, campaign and like, you know, the fact that to unlock more features in the smartphone is to earn certain amount of points and he has to use the smartphone in specific ways to earn those points. So there's that kind of competitive element that also you have to compete against other smartphone users in order to, you know, gain those points and stuff like that. And it's a big competition between all of them to see who can, like, unlock the most features soonest and stuff like that. And then, yeah, the fact that the thing that would give this series legs is the fact that, yeah, there can be multiple smartphone users for Q to match wits with. So we will see, like, the long-term direction of it. Like, yeah, I, I'm going to bet, like, no, this will last at least, like, 20 chapters. And I'm confident in that it's not going to be an instant, like, kind of cancellation. Because it has enough going for it that makes it interesting that I think that it can sustain the premise long-term. It's just, like, going to be about, you know, consistently coming up with interesting characters and not kind of betraying the premise by, like, having the phones be able to do, like, two fantastical things or, like, just being able to maintain the believability of the characters matching wits in a way that doesn't ex the strain credulity of like what they can do or how much they can know and or have them 
you know, make mistakes because they just do something stupid or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I could say this because I, I had a theory about how this was going to go, and I'm not so sure it's going to turn out this way. You know, what I thought at first was that I thought this was going to end up like Zip Man, where like... Uh, that he's the phone? Yeah, that, that he's like inside the phone. Yeah, I would not be surprised if that's like, the tw- that, that becomes a twist. Like, the t- I would not be surprised if the twist is like the phone was sent to him by the brother, or the brother's like personality is in the phone, or that ultimately he's going to be competing against his brother, and his brother is actually an enemy smartphone user, or something like that. I could totally see any of those possibilities happening. Because there are some moments in the first chapter where, like, the phone is very insistent that Q, like, start collecting points, and I just... I just thought that was, like, the most logical conclusion as to, like, why the phone is so insistent on him, like, earning points and everything. Yeah, it's like a directive, maybe, from above. Like, maybe, yeah, his brother's, like, the first program that is, like, oh, you need to go through this rigmarole collecting points and taking ownership of the smartphone to help me in some way. I'm trapped inside this phone, I need you to set me free. Or something stupid. It probably won't be that, but like... I I don't necessarily think it'll be the the in-the-phone thing, but I do think that his brother probably sent him the phone, or is very connected to the whole smartphone thing in a direct way. Like, he's not, like, just being held hostage as a victim, but he's a direct participant and player in this game, or whatever. The ultimate goal of the super smartphone, Battle of Wits, is... What would be really dumb if if his brother ended up being, like, the mastermind and, like, the actual big bad guy all along somehow no i mean i also would not be surprised if that's all <laughs> that also ends up being the direction um i think it's done because i don't know how that could work and i don't even know if that'll actually be the case but i there are a couple directions the series could go and i'm like i said i'm i'm weirdly a lot more interested in this than i thought i would be but i'm still i'm still not totally convinced that like this is gonna last more than like at maximum 30 chapters like this this still feels like the kind of thing that could get canned like because i I genuinely want to see like what the sales of the first volume are going to be like for this. I'm really interested in seeing if this will gain enough of a following to keep Jump from ultimately axing it. From what I understand from people who like track this kind of thing, early reception to it is pretty decent right now. Mm -hmm. Like it's not like a it's been hugely received, but it's like gotten a decent reception. In terms of like YouTube views of like the vomit of the first chapter or whatnot. So, you know, it could have sustainability. Okay. Um, again, just to recap for those who haven't listened to our 200th episode, uh, again, my bet was that this manga wouldn't last past 13 chapters, and if that were the case, uh, Lum would give me $5, uh, and if Lum won, I would give Lum $5, and, uh, basically whoever loses is gonna have to review, uh, that one smartphone anime isekai thing, I forget the title off the top of my head, on the Patreon, and I'm starting to think I'm gonna be the one who's gonna end up doing that. (laughs) Uh, looks like I'm gonna have to rope somebody in to help me with that because i can't do a podcast by myself it just wouldn't be that interesting i'll i'll recruit somebody to uh, to record that with me i'll figure it out but i mean that aside um again i'm glad that i gave the series a chance because i am legitimately interested in it and i want to see where it goes it'll definitely be interesting to see like how well it's received long term but we should move on to the next one yeah, so the next series of our recent two series uh, that have just debuted to replace Ayashiman Shikamaru is uh, Aliens Arena by Fusai Naba, and this series is basically just men in black 
but they have special powers. The people in the Men in Black Department in the series, which is Section 5, the Foreign Affairs Division, the Public Security Bureau. Like, uh, basically, the title of Aliens Area, uh, it refers to these places on Earth where, like, aliens come and these are, like, lawless zones for them where they, like, commit crimes and do whatever they want. And then the Foreign Affairs Division in this series uh, that is, like, tasked with, like, kind of, you know, monitoring, keeping these aliens in check or, like, you know, they, they stop aliens from committing these crimes or, like, harming humans and stuff like that. Our protagonist is a kid called Tatsumi Tatsunami, you know, very alliterative name, but he basically works a bunch of, like, different jobs to take care of his, you know, younger siblings. They're all, like, kind of orphaned. Their parents have died. So he's, like, works himself uh, a bunch of jobs to pay for, you know, the cost of raising them. Unfortunately, like, his right hand has been kind of acting up and spazzing recently because it got involved in some, like, accident a few years ago and the fire that I Thing took their parents is like during that fire he saw like a light and in the aftermath of that his hand also got messed up but especially recently it's been acting up and so he's approached by like uh shiraku who is like the director of the section five the foreign spirit division to ask about it he doesn't talk about it with him then but when he goes home he's like attacked by like an alien who is like after his hand because apparently it's like very special is been infused with some sort of alien thing and tech thing and the reason it acts up is because of like radio wave interference from outer space and outer space energy like uh, something from outer space was embedded in his hand so that's why it acts up the way it is and it's so special lucrative to the aliens that's why they've come after him and so he fights off the aliens when they're like trying to torture his younger siblings and he's like basically is able to like stretch it out one of his arm and extend it so he has like some special powers in his arm that he's ultimately able to use to kind of fight off the aliens and he's also kind of helped out bailed out by Shiraku who takes them down and basically Shiraku offers him the ability to join section 5 and work with him in the department and use his power for that end and so basically he's skeptical of that at first but then he sees kind of Shiraku in action at another case where he like foils a, a criminal alien and is basically convinced that he can trust and join him and that basically is where we're at in just the first couple chapters of the story. Yeah I thought this was I don't know if like if I'm in love with this so far but um, I don't know. Like, I think this is one of those things where, like, like at the time of this recording, there are only two chapters of this out. So I feel like we don't have enough of the story to really go off of yet. We kind of have the basic premise and not much has really, like, progressed so far, obviously. But with that being said, I think this is one of those things where I actually really like the way this series looks and I really love the way it's drawn. Something about its visual component really kind of, like, really speaks to me a little bit. I just really like the way it looks. I think the alien designs are very grotesque and exaggerated in a fun way in a way that reminds me of Don the Don yeah yeah what yeah, I appreciate yeah. about the designs in that so they stand out on a very memorable I think the action art is pretty strong especially with Patsu's hand and the action scenes evolving that in the room and then outside of that so I think that stuff is the highlight of the series so far I will say when I was reading that fight, I couldn't help but think like, oh, he has like gum gum powers and armament hockey. Yeah. <laughs> it's very similar. But yeah, I don't know. I just 
I feel bad because I, I really don't know if I have a lot to say about this so far other than I'm intrigued by the basic premise at least. Uh, I think this could end up being like a fun comic and I'm open to it. I want to read more of it, but outside of that, I just don't really have like a whole lot to say about it so far. Yeah, it doesn't give me a whole lot to latch onto on a character or team level so far. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. I mean, Tatsu is decently uh, sympathetic because, you know, he's caring for his younger siblings. He's like working himself really hard just to afford the things they need. So you can feel for him. I think Shiraku is a little bit too much of an enigma right now. Yeah. He's kind of the wily, oh, I'm, I know everything kind of guy, uh, who, I, you know, we don't have too many kind of interesting wrinkles or layers to the character yet for me to really get super interested in him. And I feel like the human designs, like, I feel like Tatsu and Shiraku's designs don't do as much for me as, like, the alien designs. I think the artist is really good at weird grotesque designs that work for the alien creatures, but with the human characters, they look a little off, a little, stocky a little too wild and <laughs> especially in the case of Shiraku and his hair and this forehead like kind of scar. He looks like the main character of a Yu-Gi-Oh spinoff. His hair is insane. <laughs> it's yeah. so pointy. <laughs> and then the little kid designs uh, are kind of I feel like I've sort of become kind of a meme in some Discord channels on because of like how weirdly wide-eyed and buck-toothed. He's great. I love him. Just how off <laughs> it, it, it looks like in the dramatic scene of like his head being squeezed and stuff like that, you know. But uh, so I really appreciate the art in this in terms of like the action stuff is what is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Just premise-wise and character-wise, though, it has, hasn't done a lot for me so far in a way to make me super interested in it like Same, the second yeah. chapter especially which was just focusing on Shiraku mostly really I kind of ended up just not retaining at all after I read it I feel like we didn't really like learn anything new like I feel like the story didn't like progress a whole lot other than Tatsumi officially joined section 5 and that's it and it's like it's set up in the beginning of like Shiraku inviting Tatsu on the mission is like, hey, you must not get involved, you know, because it'd be my responsibility otherwise. And you feel like, okay, well, that's an obvious set that he's going to get involved. And (laughs) by getting involved, that's what convinces him that, okay, you know, I can use this power for good. This is something that I can do and I can have the responsibility to do. So, you know, you think that's like what the setup is. But no, Shiraku really does just take care of it all himself. So that doesn't really pay off at all. But that convinces Tatsu anyway to join. So it feels like, well, I, I don't don't know what we necessarily learn about this other than i guess shiraku's powers and what he can do in a fight just on his own which i feel like we kind of already got a sense of at the end of the first chapter when he interfered with the fight and saved tatsu then so i feel like it was it, there was a lot of redundancy with the second chapter we might as well have gotten the moment of him officially deciding to join the section at the end of the first chapter yeah you really could have like dedicated a, like an extra page of just that at the end of the first chapter kind of streamlined and combined these into one chapter the core beats we needed to take away from them mm-hmm. no i agree like so far it is very 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 straightforward and again it doesn't help that there are only two chapters 
watches of this at the time we're recording this. So we we just don't really have a lot to go of story-wise other than like the most straightforward beats that we've gotten so far. But I don't know, like I like it so far. I'm up for reading more of it. Again, I, I think the art alone is kind of the one thing like really keeping me interested because I, I really love the way the action's drawn in this. And I it's also like very easy to read too. Like, this is the kind of manga with a lot of, like, big splash pages and stuff that, like, I'm usually pretty into. So, again, that's kind of, like, my favorite thing about this so far. Otherwise, yeah, I, I do agree. There's not, like, there's not, like, a whole lot to really, like, sink your teeth into so far. But, you know, may maybe we'll get more as the series goes on. I mean, also, I'm... I'm also a sucker for older brother type characters. So, you know, e even if Tatsumi isn't like the most interesting main character so far, like he's at least a likable character that you can get behind, which is good. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading more, actually. Indeed. But personally, I was a much bigger fan of the other New Jump series in this round. Rory Dragon, which, you know... Going into this run was the series that a lot of people were very excited for because a lot of people really love this artist, Masaoki Shinju, who's done a bunch of one shots over the years. And this is fin him finally like getting his big break in Shonen Jump. Mm, okay. And also, this is like an adaptation. This is like spinning off from the one shot he did, Rory Dragon, in 2020 that people really, really liked. And this first chapter basically borrows a lot from in terms of story content and basically the premise of the series is pretty simple uh, the protagonist Rory just wakes up uh, one day uh, with dragon horns and she basically just has to go about her day uh, with these dragon horns and people reacting to them like you know she doesn't get super clear answers to her mom her mom just tells her like oh uh, well I guess the reason that you got these horns is because your dad's not a human being your dad is a, is a dragon so she's really learning this for the first time that oh her dad's actually a dragon and because she's half dragon that's why she grew horns but her mom wasn't really expecting it uh, and so they don't really know what to do at first but you know she just leaves her her mom just leaves her to go about her day. And then we just see her classmates uh, react to it and teacher react to it. And everyone's pretty kind of lax at each other. They're like kind of curious about it at first. And they're kind of like perplexed at first. But they kind of get used to the idea that, oh, no, these are actually growing out of her head. And they just become interested in it. Like, oh, can I touch it? Oh, this is super weird and interesting. And then eventually as the chapter goes on, uh, beyond her growing dragon horns, you know, she ends up sneezing fire. And that becomes a big thing because she also starts bleeding profusely uh, from her throat and nose afterward too. And so, you know, her mom comes to pick her up from school after that. And they have more of a talk about her mom confessing that her like going through this sudden, you know, dragon puberty really got her off guard. And she didn't really know when would have been the right time in her life to tell her that her dad's a dragon. And it ultimately ends up with a sweet note of like her just kind of connecting with her mom. Like, no, it's just you and me. It's just been us and our family for all the time you kept the secret from me and made me feel a little alone and uh, yeah it's just a sweet little thing but but her mom also tells her that you know she did go meet with her dragon dad in the mountains and let her know and learned a lot more about dragons to help her as she's going through like her dragon puberty basically and as we see the chapter ends uh, with this setup of like you know Ruri is kind of you know growing into her demi-human her dragon <laughs> 
human phase of her life and she's gonna have to go through a lot of adjustments like with these horns and with sneezing fire and presumably a whole lot of other qualities that are dragon-like that are going to you know pop up for her pretty soon and also some really nice subtle things uh in terms of the art and chapter it's like you know her irises slowly becoming kind of like sharp dragon-like irises towards the end of the chapter uh from the beginning of the chapter is super interesting too so in terms of like her appearance in terms of like a lot of things about her she's really just gonna have to adjust to a lot of these different things that comes with i guess being a half dragon half human and so yeah it's just a very kind of chill slice of life kind of thing or just you know sudden surprising moments just really fun casual uh dialogue and banner between characters very naturalistic dialogue credit to kayla for doing such a great job with that and yeah i think that vibe is just what makes the series stand out and just makes it quite enjoyable to follow like it really and it surprised me as someone who read the one shot because this first chapter is longer in page count than a one shot but it actually only adapts like half of what was in the one shot because in the one shot she does go to meet her dad she sees her dad she learns more about her dad and she takes her on a flight and stuff like that and it ends with like her growing even more horns it's like it ends with another like oh she her purity's not done yet and, but we we actually do meet her dad I was surprised we didn't meet her dad in the first chapter but I'm sure they're gonna save that for uh, a couple chapters down the line but yeah in terms of a uh, long term of the series yeah it's just gonna be her kind of adjusting to all her new like kind of dragon like qualities that she's kind of uh, developing and it's you know a very clear puberty never for her. I mean suddenly growing two protrusions on her body uh you know suddenly spasm causes her to bleed profusely you know very clear direct metaphors for female puberty there but you know it's done in a very nice uh, abstracted way that is now quite charming uh to read wow that's actually really subtle i that definitely went over my head wow that's actually that's actually pretty clever um yeah i thought this was i thought this was really interesting um this definitely has the vibe of something that I think would be on like jump plus mm-hmm. like like th- this is the kind of thing I would expect to like be available exclusively on there. So I think the fact that like it is running in Shonen Jump makes it stand out even more. Like you said, I thought this was just nice and chill and I just really like the vibe of it. And I'm trying to think, I guess out of these three newest series, like it is kind of the one I'm like the most interested in. I mean, I like Aliens Arena and uh, I'm very interested in seeing where that goes. But, you know, th- that is a much more like straightforward battle manga compared to something like this. This Ruri Dragon feels a lot more interesting comparatively. Yeah, it just stands out as like a more unique premise and tone yeah. uh, for a series compared to the other two. Because this is so much more like of a chill slice of life type series that is about kind of puberty and adjusting the changes in your body which is you know the other series is like kind of a more straightforward oh battle manga against aliens or you know battle of wits uh dead no dead game type manga you know this is a little more oh you know you don't quite see a slice of light series like this that is not like a it is comedic but it's not like presented as like a gag comedy it's just like a slice of life series about kind of just the growing pains of this character yeah it's a lot more grounded compared to the other two yeah it's grounded with just the fantastical elements that she's like a dragon she's a half dragon girl you know 
and there are dragons in the world and stuff like that and presumably maybe other other demi-humans or other mythical creatures in this world too but that could also be an opportunity to expand explore the world but like just for the first part it's just about her like daily domestic life like this first chapter is just about her first day of school like after you know her dragon horns the grown and how she reacts to that and goes through the day dealing with that and how other people react to that and again like very clear direct uh, puberty metaphor so like a lot of people like noticing and heckling for her and asking uh, to touch it and, and you know again like her having to go to the nurse's office and in an emergency after you know she just starts bleeding suddenly and stuff like that so you know it's very nice and, and also just the connection the relationship between her and her mother is very well handled of like you know her mother is like kind of you know again this kind of like lax millennial type of like oh I didn't know when was going to be the first time to like kind of tell you about this and I don't really know how to handle this but I had to go ask advice about this and you know I'm sorry about that but it's you know just a sweet connection between us like hey you know you are it's you and me my whole life you my family you know and then you know they just have like that sweet connection there and then she promises that she's gonna her mom promises that she's gonna you know she did her homework she's gonna do everything to teach her all there is to know about dragons and going through this dragon puberty and stuff like that so i thought it was sweet and also like her friends also like texting her to cheer her up it was also a sweet moment too so i think again just very charming uh, relationships between her and her mother and her and her friends and again just a nice small scale focus on just her daily life just dealing with changes in herself and adjusting to that mm-hmm. i think out of the three of these i think ruri dragon in my opinion has the best chance of like having the most success i think so i think it stands out i think the character designs the aesthetic of it is very clean and easy on the eyes easy to read and then the character design of ruri is very strong and memorable so i think that yeah it has the best chance of just like kind of attracting interesting keeping interest in people because again it stands out compared to everything else in the magazine and it's not like super like text dense in the same way super smartphone is and it's not like again another battle manga uh, like aliens area is so you know i think it's adds appreciable little flavor to the jump lineup and i think yeah that is going to give it a leg up against its competing other new series for sure um i was really excited to see when i first opened up this chapter i was really excited to see that both caleb and sarah are uh Caleb doing the translation and Sarah doing the lettering on this one. That, I think that's a really powerful combo. Yeah, it's a great team. Uh, Sarah mentioned her that she was able to use a much wider font than she could normally use, thanks to the fact that the word balloons in the series are very generously big and wide. So she could use a very unique font for it that kind of fits the vibe very well. And again, Caleb was very happy that people have praised, you know, the very naturalistic dialogue that the series has that he was also able to carry through. And I think he did a good job with the translation of like the Ryu horns description because you know that is a hard thing to translate as like you know what the because originally it's like I think she's saying you know they're dragon horns uh, in English then she clarifies it in Japanese saying it that Ryu horns in the translated version and then clarifying that it's dragon was a good approach to it so you know Kayla did a lot of good job kind of trying to communicate that the sense of humor of the series 
you know, the kind of more variety sense of humor and more down-to-earth dialogue and the casualness of the interactions, I think, was done very well. Yeah, like, I really love the choice and font for this series because I, I think it really adds to its identity and it, it makes it feel different from a lot of the Shonen Jump stuff in terms of its lettering. I think that's another thing that, like, really sets it apart because I, I don't know if I've seen this font in, like, other Jump stuff before, at least not very frequently. Yeah, I mean, she mentioned that it's not something that, you know, normally you'd see be used because the font is usually generally a much wider one than most series' word balloons tend to be able to accommodate, but this series could fit it very well. So the font is called Toughest Nails BB. Mm, yeah, I think it really fits with the aesthetic of the series. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, overall, yeah, first chapter was pretty good. Um, I can't wait to read more. I'm definitely going to keep up with it. Yeah, definitely my favorite of the recent Stranger Jump series, and I'm very excited for more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ruri Dragon is the one I'm the most interested in keeping up with. Aliens Arena is definitely a second. And, you know, Super Smartphone, again, I, I had very, very low expectations for it going in, but I am kind of slowly coming around to it, like, possibly being good, you know? But I'm still very wary of, like, how long it'll actually end up lasting, so that's why it's kind of at the bottom of my ranking there in particular. But I think overall, like, certain series are better than others in this round, but I, I thought all of them were at least interesting in some some way, shape, or form? Yeah, I think all of them have a standout element about them that sets them apart, and they have a lot of potential for different reasons and in different ways. Um, But yeah, that's about it for Shonen Jump, but I think we should move on to some Manga Plus. Yeah, and so Manga Plus ended up starting one of these uh, two new auditions to their uh, service pretty right off the bat from its serialization debut in Manga Plus, and that is Marriage Toxin by Jumyaku and Mizuki Yoda. The premise of this series is that it is about, you know, an assassin, a poison user named Gero, and he, you know, is very good at his job in assassinating, you know, using these poisons very, you know, smartly overtly. But when it comes to his love life, he's much less smooth. He's very easily flustered by girls. And it's been a problem for him to, you know, have informed relationships because he kind of just has never been able to come off in the right way towards like other women and, and stuff like that. But, you know, his family is kind of pressuring him and his sister to get married to continue on the Poison Clan and his family line. And he's like, well, look, I don't want to get married just to keep the hand alive and you shouldn't deed her to his sister. You know, he's telling his sister, you should move in with your girlfriend. But, you know, it gets to the point where it's like their family is really pressuring them and his sister is like, look, our grandma is like really pushing this and I don't want you to be troubled because you've done so much for me in terms of taking care of me. So I'll just get married to continue the family line because you know if i don't do it of my own free will she's going to force me to bear a child presumably like the family needs a blood heir to continue the the family line and legacy as poison users so upon hearing this that his sister is going to like 
basically give up on our happiness with her girlfriend to just do this. He decides that, you know, no, I got to be the one to find a partner and continue our family that way. So in that moment, you know, he's on the job, like kind of tasked to kind of execute with poison, like this marriage swindler that a client he's been working with has kind of kidnapped and confined and he's encountered this windler before and he's like asked them hey you know if you want to live can you marry me because i need you know i'm in this like this for situation right i need to get married but so uh, of course the marriage swindler kinosaki refuses but either way you know in the conversation you know basically they get through to him that he has his own principles that he's you know willing to stand up for so he ends up like basically kind of turning on the clients he was hired by and he kind of shows kind of his more vulnerable by the Kinosaki which kind of convinces him that hey you know there is going to be someone else out there for you who will be interested in you for yourself and your vulnerable self your true colors and basically that convinces Garrett to like hey you know I need this person's help this person through talking to me and through kind of goading me was able to really get me to confess things about myself and like open myself up and I could use their help and their experience as a marriage swindler to help me form relationships. So he basically rescues Kinosaki from the client who had kind of imprisoned them. But, you know, it turns out, you know, he finds out Kinosaki and it's a very much like an excuse me dentist twist of like Kinosaki <laughs> is actually a cross-dresser himself and uses his good looks to form relationships with other men in the persona of a, of a woman and stuff like that. But basically, Kinosaki kind of helps Garo kind of recognize and realize that, oh, he's at his most attractive when he's, like, helping people, like, in the way that he helped him, and the way that he kind of shows off his heroic side in another uh, case later on, and so they basically come out of the other, oh, we'll find situations in which you can, like, rescue women and show off your heroic side to them. That way you'll have kind of the foundation that'll help you, like, form a relationship and find someone you can be in love with and you can marry him eventually. And so in their first kind of mission that they kind of go on uh, with this goal in mind, they rescue this art thief called Himakala, who is like, kind of rescuing or stealing back like a painting uh, that was drawn by an artist of his late daughter that was gifted to you know his family and it's that woman's husband and uh, daughter's like only painting portrait of her so she goes to rescue it for that but she's like confined by the art thieves and so they rescue her from them and that's kind of where we are now it's like oh now he's on a date with Himakawa basically and so how is that going to turn out and obviously this early into the series probably he's not gonna form a long-term relationship with Hinakama but it seems like to be kind of the format of the series is that he, they're going to go around and kind of try and uh, get involved with and rescue like different women in different situations and see if like Garo can form relations with them and so it's also partly a, a battle among that way as they face off against other like you know assassins that have like special powers or specialties that they use like uh, you know Garo is a poison user and then in rescuing him a Kawa, he faces off against a person in a submarine suit who is like a water user and can manipulate water in really uh, lethal ways. So it's kind of an interesting take on like us 
the special power uh, battle manga in that way as well. But ultimately, I think that it's just got a nice message about like, oh, like there's a lot of different people in the world and a lot of people who will like can fall in love with you and recognize, you know, your true colors and fall in love with your true self. Like, you know, in the first chapter, like, Guy was meeting with his best friend who's the bug user and he's kind of has like a you know very stereotypically ugly mug but he's like mentions to Gary like I'm getting married and I want a wife and he's like happy for his friend and it's like oh you know there is someone out there for everyone and that's also something that's reprised as a refrain in like the third chapter of like you know there's this kind of like very shaggy like artist who's like super antisocial but he has someone who like deeply loves him for who he is and stuff like that so there's that bit of hopefulness like yeah no there's there's someone out there for you who will love you for you and you just need to show off your best qualities and find opportunities to show off uh, the best parts of yourselves and eventually you'll find someone. That's what Kinosaki is trying to help Garo realize and give him situations as his wig man to let him shine. And in the process of that it just happens he has to fight against you know uh, other assassins and criminal types who have special powers much like he does. So I think the premise is very fun and I really like the character interactions, the dynamic between Garo and Kinosaki and a lot of the supporting characters that have introduced like his sister, like Himakawa and I like that she has like a Sharkner and crime <laughs> Joshua <laughs> that she rides Sharkner and crime uh, out of situations. It's really great. And uh, yeah, so and the action's really strong too, really uh, cool and dynamic. And uh, yeah, I really am enjoying the series a lot so far. It's a lot of fun characters and it has a really nice, fun premise. Yeah, this series is uh, pretty fucking good, actually. I really, really loved this. This is basically like if Spy Family were a lot more of a battle manga. Yeah, it is kind of like how in the premise of Spy Family, Lloyd needs to have like a, his own like fake wife in Yor and stuff like that. It's like that if that was like the focus of the series long term. Yeah. It's like they have to find a partner, a genuine partner for him. In my family's case, it's all about, oh, we can pretend family. In his case, like, no, I got to find someone who will really love me and want to marry me. Mm-hmm. Like, Spy Family is a lot more of a comedy than it is a battle manga, whereas I feel like here it's a little more even. Yeah, I mean, it's a very funny series, but it has more of a battle focus as it's gone on, and especially as he's faced off against, like, other assassins and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, every chapter so far has ended up uh, in, like, some conflict with, like, kind of a criminal organization or some criminal group or Garo is able to use his poison skills effectively while showing off kind of his his cool side and stuff like that but also his goofy side you know he's very like socially awkward I love the bit where like he, he's in the middle of uh, that speed dating thing and like he keeps trying to smile and it keeps failing <laughs> His, his faces are really good in that moment. Yeah. Like he keeps like kind of creeping out like his potential <laughs> dates for one reason or another. Uh, I think that got the biggest laugh out of me. Yeah. I Garo kind of fulfills another particular character archetype that I really love. And that's the assassin that has like kind of an honor code or like not necessarily honor code, but like a standard of like who he's okay with killing. Because, like, he makes it known that, like, if he's going to kill, he's only going to kill, like, the worst of the worst people, you know? So that way, he could still do his job and, like, still get some sleep at night, you know? And so I really like that about him. Like, even though he's, a like, a hired killer, like, he is an assassin for a living, he's still kind of a good person, which is really interesting. I mean, he has a heart. Yeah. Like, when him and Kinosaki are talking and they come up with the plan of, like, oh, well, we'll just have you, like, rescue somebody and then you can, like, date them from there. And then I, I like the moment where he's like, well, 
I don't know about that. Like, I don't want to, like, take advantage of somebody, like, in their, like, in their most vulnerable position or whatever. Like, I like that he's the kind of guy that, like, thinks about that kind of stuff, you know? It's like you said, it shows that, like, he has, like, a good side to him. Like, he he actually kind of has a heart, which I find really interesting. Like, he's still, he's still a weirdly likable character, despite his trade. Yeah, because he, I mean, we see it in his relationship with his sister. He does put others in their needs first, even though, you know, he has his own desires and stuff like that. And ultimately, though, you know, there's a line where it's like, he is not going to work work for really scummy people and he's not going to hurt like good innocent people and also he's just endearing because of again his social awkwardness like in the meeting where he's having with like Kimikawa's group and you know they're having this current conversation about him taking on the case and he ends it with like a final question of like raising his hand and asking very seriously like this Himikawa like guys with glasses and stuff like that so he's just also like just overly worried and concerned about like his appearances and making good impressions as well. I really like it first when Gero initially meets Kinosaki and he's put in a position where he has to like torture them. And the first thing he does to try to save them is ask them to marry him in order to get them out of the situation. Because I feel like that would have been like the easy route to go in terms of the story. That was the premise I thought was going to happen. And at first I thought that was going to happen. And then Kinosaki's like, why would I do that? That's stupid. Like marriages are supposed to be equal. And if I were to marry you because I was basically forced to, then that wouldn't be equal. I like how the series presents what could be the premise and like ultimately rejects it i thought that was really clever yeah i mean it again goes back to the the message of like you want like an equal relationship you also want someone who like genuinely cares about you and sees you for you are like a real partner not like just kind of a sham relationship yeah i guess in that instance it's very different from spy family where lloyd at first was just kind of looking for somebody to fill a role. Yeah, same with your like they they just needed someone to pretend to be like their partners to keep up experiences. And then over time, I think they've genuinely become a family. But it really was all about oh, like, hey, we genuinely like each other. And we both have like our own needs to have like a partner to keep up appearances so why don't we get into this arrangement but like even just for this pretense like Hinasaki isn't even willing to lie to Gara to say like no I'm not I'm not gonna go along with that and then he gets Gara to you know recognize no that's what not what he really wants either he doesn't want like just a marriage of convenience he genuinely does want someone who loves him he wants to have a happy life with someone he loves and that's what he wants to work towards and that's what he wants to find for sure. Um, I'm genuinely really looking forward to like reading more of this. Like I want to see what kind of like people he goes on dates with and I want to see what kind of other crazy wacky assassins he has to fight. Yeah, it's a very fun series. And like Excuse Me Dentist, I mean, Excuse Me Dentist has the more overt, like, oh, like the, the two characters are crushing on each other, even though one of them doesn't know the other person isn't a cis woman. But in this case, it's like, well, I think you definitely have the sense that Kinosaki is crushing on Geralt, but because of the needs of the story, I don't know if that's actually going to go anywhere, but it's still an element that I appreciate. I was kind of thinking like, man, it would be really interesting if like Gero and Kinosaki actually ended up in a relationship together somehow but i but i don't know if that'll happen i like it a lot if the story develops in that direction you know that'd be interesting but like yeah i also 
Because of the needs of the story of, like, he needs to have, like, a biological heir, apparently. Like, I don't know if, like, that's something that'll happen. But it'd be an interesting source of conflict if, like, Kinosaki and Garo do generally fall in love with then Oh, no. Like, well, then, you know, what are we going to do about, like, the heir thing that the family wants? Not what they actually care about and all that stuff. He might have to rebel against his family at some point. You never know. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, but the series has shown that it's including uh, LGBTQ characters in it with Garo's sister and her girlfriend. So, and I hope to see more of them. So I, I don't see more characters like that. So, you know, maybe it will go in that direction, surprisingly, but we'll see. So far, Garo does not really see Kinosaki in that way at all, though. He was, like, bewitched by his appearance when he passed him on the street, which is how he got in the Wendy Team broke his glasses. But now it seems like his attention has just moved elsewhere. And really, it's like Kinosaki who's getting blustered over him rather than vice versa. Mm-hmm. No, I, I was going to say, like, th- this series isn't afraid to have, like, just a gay couple that exists. Like, the series is okay with, you know, having that kind of thing and not, like not like dwelling on that too much like it's not it's not a big deal well i can outright acknowledge it which is nice it's like we don't have to sidestep it you know like there's been a lot of nice progress in a lot of you know jump plus series in particular of including lgbtq characters and representing yeah but you know even in a series i love like blue flag it's like takes a while to like outright acknowledge like hey you know toma is gay or hey like a certain character identifies as a queer identity here though we like have right out in the first chapter you know just the overt statement of like hey she has a girlfriend and they're in love and they want to get married be in a relationship with each other you know and i appreciate that just off the bat it shows a nice growth in the terms of like not being afraid to just depict and include lbq characters in your series that uh, i'm glad that we're finally at a stage which shown and jump stuff no, for sure. Um, with that being said, again, I, I don't know how likely it is that Garrow will end up in like a same sex relationship, but there's a small chance that could happen. But I guess we'll I guess we'll have to see. Yeah, no, there's still queer uh, subtext in the relationship between Garrow and Kinosaki. And it, it does feel like Kinosaki does genuinely like kind of a little bit flustered or it does get a little bit of uh, crush on Garrow when he shows off his, his good side in, in different situations. So it's the interesting if that develops anywhere. Mm-hmm. But genuinely, I'm, I'm really excited to like read more of this. I thought this was, I thought this was uh, really good. Absolutely. I've been enjoying reading it since uh, it's been coming out and definitely continuing to keep on to it. Then the same is also true of the other big addition to Manga Plus, which again is a huge addition in terms of like, you know, this series has had quite the hype and reputation behind it since it published because it's a collaboration between two big manga artists, Aka Akasaka of Kakisama Lowe's War and Mango Yokiari of Scum's Wish. Akasaka is writing the series, Yokiari is drawing the series. And yeah, Oshinoko is a huge series, very popular, and it's kind of incredible that it took two years to put it on Manga Plus or have it licensed in any form and translated legally in any form. But you know, it's no surprise again that it has been now because because again, it's getting an anime, and I'm pretty confident that an English publisher has licensed it based on the fact that, you know, Manga Plus has had to use uh, about a month into adding it to the service. It's ticketing system of like first read free, but then the you can't read the chapter again for, you know, backlog chapters for the series. 
So yeah, I would not be surprised if we'll hear the official licensing announcement that Inigo's Repertory has picked it up for print release in North America pretty soon. But Oshinoko is basically about exploring kind of the interaction between, you know, celebrity culture, the entertainment industry, and the online world, and then fandom, and then kind of like some of the toxicity in those relations and how they can affect people. Basically, the premise starts out with a doctor called Goro Amemiya. He basically is an OBGYN. And, you know, one of his former patients was a teen girl who was really in love with an idol called Ai Hoshino. And in treating this girl and, like, kind of watching some of Ai's concerts, he becomes a fan of hers, too. And sadly, the girl he was treating, Serena, ended up, you know, just passing away. But he ends up, just by a chance of fate, ends up being kind of eyes doctor when she is pregnant and he's basically you know tasked to keep that secret and also help shake up on her until she delivers her baby and stuff and through his interactions with I he kind of forms like a understanding and a friendship and he learns more about her philosophy as an entertainer and like what she's aspiring towards and a philosophy of like you know kind of lying as a form of love like lying to the world of like you know who she is and what's going on with her is like a form of love to her and so yeah you know she basically is like treating her and watching over her up until the point where she is expected to deliver but on that day he's attacked by a assessed fan and stalker of eyes and is murdered and as it turns out he ends up being reincarnated as one of eyes twin children and it's not really a spoiler that his twin was the patient that he had treated who was the fan of eyes and introduced him to I. Uh, she has also been reincarnated as uh, his sister and so now he has been reincarnated as aquamarine and uh, his patient Serena has been reincarnated as Ruby. So they grow up as like ice children for a little bit as she, you know, is embarking on her, you know, career and growing in popularity as an idol. And simultaneously, Aquamarine in particular, he ends up getting, you know, opportunities because, you know, he has this like adult intelligence and a child body and that precociousness attracts interest from a lot of people, particularly a director who kind of scouts him out to act in a film of his uh, along some another child star and so he kind of gets his foot in the door into entertainment industry and that initial premise of like watching kind of eyes growth as a uh, idol and her growth of popularity and then kind of the early adventures of like aqua and ruby kind of also entering the entertainment world uh that is basically the premise for the first 10 chapters and then the series kind of soft resets afterward where we skip forward into aqua and ruby's teen years and then it's about them like full fledged like pursuing careers in the entertainment world like Ruby is very much interested in following an ice footsteps as an idol and kind of revitalizing her idol group and Aqua is interested in kind of entering the entertainment world to kind of suss out who their father was, hmm. uh, believing that his biological father is like the one who has been leaking information about I and was the one who kind of leaked that information to Sakura that ended up getting, you know, him killed and stuff like that. So that basically becomes kind of the driving force of the story, kind of their twin journeys in the entertainment world as like Aqua ends up returning to the acting world and starts to act in a of different projects while Ruby restarts the 
you know, idol group at Strawberry Productions and her quest to become an idol much like I. And then she recruits like other members into her group. And so that's basically the force of the story from there. And yeah, to reiterate, like I think the striking thing about the the story is that it very much plays upon like kind of the mind games aspect of Kaguya-sama in terms of character relationships with each other. And also the way they think about things and have all these philosophies on like, you know, love and the appearances of how they present themselves to the world, the personas they kind of put on, you know, in many respects, you know, why love is like a team. Of the story in many sense, the fact that Ai is keeping a lot of secrets about herself from her fans, the fact that Ruby and Aquamarine are like keeping the secrets of like who their fierce identities were from each other and from Ai and other people. And then this team is like reiterated upon in many different ways kind of the conflict between lying as a means of like you know protecting yourself lying as a means of like kind of protecting other people but also kind of the balance of navigating that in terms of not just uh, your relationship as an entertainer as a public figure with like the you know public and your audience but also in your own interpersonal relationships how genuine those relationships are how much you keep from one another and in your feelings and stuff like that. And Aquamarine, Aqua is like very much kind of uh, embraced I's philosophy of lies is love and that lies are like the best form of like kind of protecting yourself and your secrets. But Ruby has kind of gone in a completely different direction of like she doesn't really want to lie about herself and about who and what she is inspiring towards. Like she wants to basically do things honestly. Like she's given a chance to like, you know, collab with a YouTuber later and like the YouTuber like offers like, hey, you know, we can do this big dare challenge and I could just edit it later to make it look like you did it but she's like no I don't want to start off my career my relationship with my fans with like a lie on that so there's an interesting philosophical conflict between Aqua and Ruby in that respect too and um, this team iterates in a lot of different aspects of the series too it really is about kind of navigating the entertainment world and the cult of personality of idol culture and how that kind of affects the people involved in those worlds in terms of like you know the pressures that places on idols as entertainers and actors as entertainers and the scrutiny they face from the public that really you know wears on them psychologically and restricts them and makes them like kind of doubt their own uh genuinity and sense of selves and then also navigating kind of a unfortunate kind of cruelties and realities of the entertainment world in terms of like a lot of sexism and a lot of different barriers ageism and how different productions were kind of the cynicalness of some entertainment productions and stuff like that but then ultimately like the protagonist having the earnestness of like saying you know even in these kind of harsh environments and realities that we recognize and acknowledge are unfair and unjust we will have each other's backs and then we will try navigating these systems uh ways to protect each other and ourselves and then pursue our careers and pursue happy lives kind of work towards our dreams even under meet all these pressures and stuff but what i appreciate about it is does very much acknowledge just directly kind of the darker sides of the industry and the darker aspects of 
of like again idol worship and the parasocial relationships between entertainers and their fans and stuff like that and the very kind of serious and oftentimes you know lethal consequences of them in many cases so it, it has a lot of really like kind of fascinating aspects to it in terms of the kind of direction of the story and the teams it explores and very compelling like central characters in their drives and in their conflicting like philosophies and views on the world of entertainment and how they bounce off each other mm-hmm. yeah this was um I mean, I guess just for me, Oshinoko is definitely a series that I've been aware of basically ever since people like started talking about it like pretty early in its run a couple of years back. And, uh, you know, it's definitely a series that like I knew people who were like really into it and I would hear the rumblings of what's going on in the story here and there from time to time. And I would always just, I, I basically heard nothing but praise for this series. So I was really, really surprised, but uh, happy to finally see it like get picked up somewhere you know, like on Manga Plus. And like Lum said, I'm, I'm sure that someone is going to announce that they've licensed this soon. But um, yeah, I only had the chance to read about a volume's worth of material, like the first seven or eight chapters. Like, I think I got up to the point where Ruby was like, practicing her like dance moves and stuff, Um, which I, I think it was around that chapter where like, because obviously, like, the series starts off with this whole philosophical thing where it's like, oh, basically, idols and everything about them are a lie that people can kind of, like, take comfort in. And that's weirdly kind of the whole point of, like, you know, being an idol and, like, being an idol fan is that you kind of revel in that, like, sort of parasocial... In the fantasy of, like, this idealized symbol of kind of purity and beauty that idols are supposed to represent. And the fans that cannot disconnect themselves from the fact that that is a fantasy and not reality, and then kind of become violently upset at idols when they break from their idealized vision of that fantasy, that is a big source of conflict, uh, you know, in the inciting incident of the story and then later on in several examples yeah i was just gonna say i like with ruby in particular because obviously she used to be the sick kid in the hospital who was really into i and you know was a was a really huge fan of her and i really like and i mean i I don't know if this changes past where i read you can correct me if i'm wrong but at least as far as i got i really like that you have someone like ruby who's like really invested in i and her journey as an idol i like that even though the series tackles this idea of idols being a lot that even though they're clearly this like idealized fantasy that like people can immerse themselves in for like some kind of escapism in the end that's still at least kind of valid and even worth something the lie can genuinely inspire people like even if like i is not always the person that she presented herself as kind of the way she presented herself the her persona was still inspiring to ruby and that encouraged her to believe that yeah i can do these things like i want to be able to do these things like her and especially now that i'm her daughter and stuff like that i can do that and that's similarly true of like hey you know this person like even though you're only seeing one side of them it's like an act that they're putting on like still that has value to people that can be a source of inspiration and comfort and joy to people and that can make a meaningful difference in their lives yeah i just really like that the story doesn't like totally take that away from her like it would be so easy for this story to just totally veer off into that abyss of like sheer hopelessness and cynicism about the reality of idols no, it's not completely cynical. I mean, there's, again, the interesting philosophical conflict between 
Aqua and Ruby is that Aqua is more privy to Ai's philosophy and the fact that her idol persona is a facade. I mean, Ruby is cognizant on some level that I, you know, as an idol was putting on, you know, a performance. Like she sees some of the vulnerabilities, but not as much as, you know, Aqua was privy to. So for her, she has some, still a much more idealized view of Ai, which she has carried with her to her teen years and in her own like aspirations to become an idol. And that, that's also the source of like kind of the difference in the fact that you know, Aqua is much more cynical and much more, you know, kind of having a philosophy of like, well, I'm going to kind of basically lie as a means to protect myself and to kind of manipulate people to ultimately get what I want. But then Ruby is just like, just much more genuine about like herself and her wants and pursuing it and like inner relationships and feelings towards other people. In some ways that can like almost put her, you know, uh, at risk in the same way as I, like when she's like chastised for like almost tweeting a negative comment about a brand and it's like dude if you do that the brands do search for what you say about them if you tweet about that brand you're not going to get work from them and stuff like that that's just like a minor example but it's an interesting kind of difference in like philosophy of the characters that i find so interesting yeah all, all i'm saying is I'm, I'm just glad this series isn't like too cynical so far at least as far as i've read no, it's not. Because even like when exploring the dark aspects of the industry, like in the most recently concluded arc on Manga Plus, which is the dating reality show arc, which goes into dark territory of like one of the actors in the show, like she accidentally hurts another one of the actresses and she immediately they make up men's like the uh, actress she hurts doesn't have hard feelings about it. But like when the show is aired, she is like portrayed as the bad guys through the editing and so like she is subject to a huge online harassment campaign and people like criticizing her and writing just horribly mean things about her online and she can't escape from that like because even when she goes to school and is offline she's hearing people talking about this stuff and that really weighs on her psychologically uh, and it damages her health and <laughs> it leads to a moment where she nearly commits suicide but ultimately in the aftermath of that you know they take time to acknowledge like this kind of thing happens this thing where like the pressures that actors and reality shows place under like people have committed suicide because of this kind of yeah. thing and you know, there are a lot of people who haven't done that, but the fact that there are like still so many that have is just a real sign of just the toxicity that can come with putting yourself in the public eye and like not also putting yourself like just yourself and not a persona out there in the world that is subject to criticism as this girl did where she, you know, she was not putting on a character on the reality show for most of it she was just acting as herself and that kind of made the comics towards her just hurt all the more and weigh on her all the more which is why and like when they kind of work with her and they kind of help like kind of rehabilitate her image within the confines of the show to like say that hey no the actors on the show they're all friends like the actors independently because the show is unwilling to kind of like break the illusion the actors independently like make their own edited video that they upload on the show's social media accounts to show like hey we're friends behind the scenes you shouldn't lambast her for saying that she hurt this person and it's like you know it did something so unforgivable and then like uh, you know when she returns to the show the actress she decides okay I'll return to the show as a character this time and I'll portray this character in this way I'll have a separation between myself and between like the role that I'm putting on on this show 
you know, I think that it's such an interesting area. It, like, goes into the very dark places of, like, what parasocial relationships uh, between fans and entertainers can be like. And the really, real tragic consequences of that. But then also has the optimism to say that, hey, you know, if people look out for each other and they actually take care to pay attention to feelings of other people and work with them and try and actually, like, help protect them from this online harassment, you know, be there to support them. It's still going to be, you know, a distressing thing, but it doesn't have to be something that she endures alone and just like has to bear the bunt of and the damaging effects of psychologically just unprotected. So I appreciated that. that it ultimately, you know, maybe it's a little idealistic that she's able to recover from, you know, the harassment she <laughs> endured so quickly. But still, like, you know, it's, it's a very sweet note that like her friends on the show came together to support her and give her the space to kind of reinvent herself on a show and that actually does have the effect of like her public perception and public image like improving and you know the harassment that was directed towards her kind of dying down and backing off Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I don't have like a whole lot else to add. Because again, I only had so much time to read so much of it, unfortunately, but I definitely want to read more of this from from what you're telling me, like, I'm very excited to like, read the rest of whatever's out eventually and um, see where the series goes. Because again, I've, I heard nothing but good things about this series. And I, I really think this is a series where like, its reputation like really precedes itself. I was not led astray. Like I, I think at least from what I've read and what I'm hearing, like this is a really excellent series. And I really can't wait to read more of it eventually yeah it is a remarkable thing about like being like kind of a compelling story about the entertainment industry and showing off like kind of the darker more unpleasant aspects of that world without completely giving into the cynicism and saying like well pursuing a dream pursuing a career in that world is like hopeless and just full of a hardship and heartbreak because you know again this series like mentioned before it deals with that extreme example of like the dangers of her social relationship and online harassment but also it deals with other subject matter like again ageism both like the child actress of Kana Arima when she grew up she found less work uh, after she grew into her teen years and had to kind of reinvent herself and struggles to find work as a teen actor and then you have like men show who's like couldn't get a break in the idol industry because she was too old for it by the time she was allowed to enter at just the age of like 23 and the idol industry is only interested in uh, people like younger than 20 so she couldn't get a foot in the door but you know now with ruby's group like she so she also had to lie about her age as like an online influencer as a youtuber and tiktoker and say she's like 18 even though she's actually 25 so it deals with stuff like that of like you know kind of the facades that people in the dream world have to kind of put up and also kind of the struggles that you with because people are so concerned about appearances and public perception and so on a lot of that unfairness but it never says to like give up hope because both of those characters like Kana and Mensho funny enough they find second wins in the careers you know thanks to Ruby's group and her earnestness of like saying hey you know you guys are amazing and you guys can be idols and be big celebrities again no matter what like your public perceptions would be because of like Kana says like a former child actress or Mensho like lying about her age as influencer or whatnot and stuff like that 
that. So yeah, I appreciate that a lot. And again, the personal relationships between characters are interesting. I've talked a lot about how interesting I find Aqua and Ruby's relationship is, but also, you know, again, because Aqua is like trying to navigate the entertainment world in pursuit of like who his father is, who the man that I had children with is. Like he is also like forming a lot of relationships under pretenses, including like forming a false romantic relationship with someone who he just wants their ability like he cares about them as a person but he really is only forming the relationship as a person to keep them in his life so that he can kind of pick their brain for their kind of ability to like really emotionally empathize and like get into the head of other people including I so it explores kind of a lot of different forms of like relationships between people whether it's that the relationship between entertainers and their fans or relationships between two people in a romantic relationship or a relationship between people in the same family and just kind of the various levels of like lies and truths what kind of side of yourself you show to another person and how truthful that actually is and how genuine uh, those sides of yourself you show to those people actually are and what situations under what circumstances. So I find that aspect of it and that navigation of it very compelling too. So I mean, yeah, Soshinoko definitely lives up to the hype. It's like a very fascinatingly written and smartly written series about the entertainment industry and uh, idol culture and parasocial relationships and a lot of different things. And yeah, it's uh highly recommend definitely give it uh, read and I think that what's interesting about the timing of like Manga Plus adding it and their upload schedule about four chapters a week is that I think that the series will catch up to the Japanese serialization uh, by its 100 chapter in mid-October so it should time itself pretty well for that so that'll be a cool thing but even if it doesn't quite exactly line up with that before the end of the year they should catch up with the Japanese serialization and be a full-fledged simulpub. So that'll be very exciting. And yeah, I definitely think that a English publisher has licensed it and we will hear that announcement for print releases very soon. Mm, I think so too. But now we move on from one series about the idol industry to another. Hikaru in the Light by Mai Matsuda, which is Asuki's new Ikusa Simulpub series. And we were uh, given the opportunity by Asuki to review the first volumes worth of chapters, the first six chapters of the series ahead of time, which we are really thankful for. We're really grateful because these were a blast to read. I really, really enjoyed the series. A very different take from Oshinoko. It doesn't quite as, not very, but it, not very with emphasis, but just a, a very in terms of like, it does not deal uh, with like the darker aspects of it. There's no murder uh, thus far in this series. It's a lot more uplifting. Yeah, it is much more uplifting. It is much more like kind of meant to be like inspiring. Like, hey, you know, there is a special quality about everyone that can be given a chance to shine and can, you know, really uplift you in ways you don't expect. As is uh, the case in the premise of the series, which is about this middle school girl, Hikaru, whose family runs a bathhouse. And ever since she was little, she was been given the opportunity to sing in that bathhouse. Like her grandfather likes a lot of older music. Music, uh, so he makes her sing a lot of that stuff in the madhouse. And, you know, a lot of people really enjoy singing and thinking like, wow, she has a really incredible voice and stuff. But, you know, even though Akaru enjoys singing the bats and people enjoy your singing, you know, she doesn't have a ton of confidence in herself in terms of like, well, can she like make something more out of it? You know, she feels like, oh, well, I 
I'm okay in this bathhouse, but I don't have what it takes to be like an idol, like my best friend, Ron. And Ron is, uh, you know, her friend who is like two years older than her. She's in an idol group called the JPA 50 at the beginning of the series, but she's not like one of the leading members. She's like uh, in the third row in the center, basically, but she's part of like, again, a 50 person idol group. So she doesn't really get to stand out much inside of it, even though, you know, Hikaru is like very transfixed on her, but she's also frustrated that Rana's not really getting her chance in the spotlight in the same way. Then uh, the kind of inciting incident of the series is that a world famous producer of like idol groups and bands called M. Hayama comes back to Japan and he kind of lambasts Japan's idol culture saying like, when has Japan been so obsessed with just promoting ordinary girls? Like he is very much aghast at the signation and bloat of Japan's idol industry, which he sees as uninterested in cultivating genuine talent. So he has created a competition called Girls in the Light, which is a nationwide competition, primarily conducted in some cities, where he hopes to like identify like genuinely talented stars and performers to create like kind of an all-star idol group that has the ability to kind of, you know, stand out internationally like compete on the international stage in terms of popularity. And so Ron quits the JPA 50 so that she can enter this competition and goes back to recruit Hikaru. But Hikaru, you know, kind of runs away from her because she is not very confident in herself. But like Ron is telling her, you know, I have been trying to live up to your singing ability ever since I first heard you sing, like when you were nine. Like to me, you are like an amazing singer performer. I've been waiting for you to join me on the stage as a a performer and stuff. Like she, Ron really believes in Hikaru and her talent. And, you know, Hikaru is like still thinking like, oh no, I'm just not a special person. I couldn't put that special effort into anything. But Ron notices like, hey, you actually have a really strong core. You have to like chiseled abs. <laughs> like, why do you have that? And like Hikaru says, well, you know, I do crunches every day because, you know, it's supposed to help you with, with singing and stuff like that. And Ron is like, hey, you know, if you can put that much effort into something you don't need to do, like you, you didn't need to do that, but you put that effort in anyway. Like you have what it takes to be a special person and that is what's special about you and sure enough like as Hikaru goes in the competition like a lot of people are commenting like wow she has amazing core strength and that's really helping her in both her singing and her dancing here but yeah Hikaru enters the In the Light competition she ends up impressing M. Hayama in both stages of it in, like her initial audition performance even though she's very nervous and has to perform with a mop like she usually performs at the bathhouse and then in the second audition where she you know messes up her dance at first but then kind of manages to turn around and course correct and then you know perform with a smile in a way that attracts Hayama's attention and impresses him and then similarly Ron also manages to pass the auditions though she is like kind of giving the advice and observation of you know you're like kind of a jack of all trades master of them you know you can like score like an 80% a solid 80% across the board you don't screw up your hard worker but you don't have like a explosive impact you feel like like you are desperate to beat out people who are better than you, which is very much like Ron's motivation. Like he's always been comparing herself to a car and stuff like that. But that's still something very special about her that she can work so hard and then she shines when she is competing with other people. So you know, she gets in, Hikaru gets in, and basically they make their way to like kind of the survival camp for the idols to have kind of gotten through the preliminary audition stages. And so that was from a pool of like 10,000 applicants. They made it to like 
like the final 40. And a car is given permission to join by your parents just under stipulation of like, you know, you better not shirk your studies and stuff like that. And like Caro ultimately managed still to get true to them, convince them um, by saying like, hey, this is like kind of my youth, you know, this is how I want to spend it and make the most of it. This is something that I can only do now, which manages to kind of convince them. And also she is kind of through this process of auditioning and training for this, recognizing that I can't be satisfied just with this idea that, oh, I'll always have the bats to perform at and that, you know, I'm comfortable in just where I am. Like now that I have had a taste and understanding that I can be a special person, I want to become a special person and I work hard to be that and be on that stage with Ron and all these others. And so yeah, basically where we're at at the end of the first volume, the first six chapters, is that they're at the survival camp and they're about to, you know, go through like kind of their first two stages of the camp. And after these stages, like half of the contestants are going to basically be eliminated like right off the bat so yeah it's like a really compelling start uh, i really like the relationship between ron and akaru and how they motivate each other and inspire each other to like kind of push themselves and do more i think the art is very strong in the performing scenes and yeah i really like kind of the way that the artist draws you know eyes and hair with their highlights and stuff like that i think it has a very nice like shiny look to it that i think fits kind of like kind of the ultimate bright optimistic tone of the story like uh, we mentioned like it, unlike Oji no Ko, it's not as much about kind of the darker aspects of the industry it has the critique of like well the industry is more concerned about superficial aspects of like appearances and being personable but not actually like you know the talents of the performance evolved which is like Emma Yama's whole thing of like oh no I only want I want to create a group that is generally about cultivating the most talented people so that's an interesting aspect that I wonder if it's going to be explored further but like we can see a lot of evidence of that and like all the other characters that are also competing alongside Hikaru and Ron of like you know they all have like a very interesting defining individual skill like you know Hikaru's roommate is someone who makes her own music Ron's roommate is someone who's in a dance program for three years and is like a backup singer for like an internationally popular uh, group but it's like tours the world and stuff like that. And so, yeah, it's an interesting collection of uh, different characters they're competing against. I'm excited and interested in seeing being explored more further. But you know, overall, I think just the heart of it and what makes it very compelling is just, you know, Mikarnu's earnestness and like how much she in ultimately, you know, she starts from a place of like not really believing herself that she has what it takes to be someone special or that she can put in that effort but then just through her enthusiasm for wanting to perform for people make them smile like ultimately when she starts dancing she even though she messes up the meaning she kind of corrects herself by thinking to herself like you know i want to leave them with a positive impression of me like when they close their eyelids they'll think of me and stuff like that so just through her passion for singing as a performing she's able to like impress these people and also these experiences you know and being seeing the praise uh of so many people kind of convinces her that no I, I now that i've had a taste of this i do want this i'm like not satisfied just being where i am i want to go to shine in the light so 
I like that growth for her, and I find her a character growth already in this first volume very compelling. Excited to see where it goes. And similarly, Ron, I think, is an interesting character for someone who also very talented hard worker, but, you know, because she is so focused on competing with other people and just being technically perfect, she hasn't really found her own individual voice yet. And I think that's an interesting thing to see how she'll uh, grow into as her character arc goes forward, too. But, yeah. Uh, I really, really am enjoying this series a lot so far. So, very, very... I think Oski made a great choice for the first Sinal Bub uh, selection, and I'm very excited to continue reading on forward with it. Yeah, I'm not really sure how much else I have to add to that. There are definitely things I like about this series, but I don't know, I weirdly, I really just kind of thought it was okay. I don't know if I really like it enough to where I'd keep up with it week to week or whatever. This is definitely something where I'd rather let a few chapters kind of build up and I would kind of maybe come back to it every once in a while. Um... I, I, I do think the thing with me is that um, from what we were given by Azuki, which once again, huge thanks to Azuki for giving us access to, you know, future chapters, we really appreciate it. I think when I got to the end of the volume, all I could think was, oh man, like I, I, I think I was disappointed because it's like we finally got through like all the audition stuff and now we're just about to get into their like idle training camp. And I think, I think part of me was just like, oh, do I, I have to stop there? Like, I, I think part of me was like, oh man, I, I wish we could have gotten to maybe that a little sooner. Um, or maybe I'm just super impatient. I don't know. But I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's the mark of a good series where it's like, I was kind of enjoying it. And then I got to a point where I was like, oh, I have to stop there. Like, oh man, like I, I think I was a little disappointed with where I had to stop. But you know, th- nobody can really help that. Um, but I mean, overall, like, I think what I like about the series is that I do like that even though it's clearly not as like biting as like Oshinoko, but I do like that this is still a series that like is seemingly aware of like the fault of the idol industry, obviously with Hayama, who like you said, um, really actually wants to cultivate talent and not just like, you know, find someone marketable who can make them the most money or whatever. I do like that aspect about it. I like Ron and Hikaru's relationship as well. Like I like that they're the kind of people who... Uh, who obviously have, like, they don't see what's good about themselves, but they could easily find, like, good things about each other. Like, they kind of struggle with the little self-worth. I don't know, I, I just, I just find that, I just find that, um, that dynamic, like, really compelling and, like, it, j- it just makes me sad when it's like, oh, this person is, like, really good at this and I really like this about them, uh, but I'm not, I'm not really good at anything. There's nothing special about me. Like, that, that just makes me sad. <laughs> like, they both look up to the other and say, like, no, you are the amazing one. They're not really, they don't notice, like, hey, the amazing qualities about themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just unless the other person really points it out to them, which I do think is a very sweet dynamic for their friends and relationship mm-hmm. but yeah no th- there are things i like about the series um it's just for for whatever reason for whatever reason i'm 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 just not as compelled to like immediately read more of it but it's it's something that like i would come back to eventually well different things hit for different people but i definitely was like left like oh man i want to read what happens next and the journey of these girls uh through their quest to become like top performers and idols and like really achieve like kind of their dreams of standing in the spotlight center stage you know and i'm, I'm really interested in all like the other characters that kind of were, like introducing in the end like oh like what are we gonna learn about these characters like we got a lot set up for the instagrammer character who noticed that kakara had strong core muscles uh we have set up for like this girl who's like the daughter of you know two celebrities a singer and actor so she's like a singer model herself so she's probably gonna have something there 
you know so i'm interested in seeing and exploring like what are these other characters are going to bring to the table like i feel like the series tipped its hand a little bit like what kind of the core group of characters are going to be like at the end of the first chapter when it's like showing a bunch of different characters react to the you know announcement of girls in the light you know, it's a bunch of the main cast that we see at the end of the volume who are like made it to the survival camp. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm interested in learning more about them. And uh, I'm just interested in seeing the direction of the story because, yeah, I, I just generally did find the character arc of Hikaru and of Ron just within this first volume very well developed and very compellingly developed. And I'm curious to see like yeah, how they'll continue to grow. I will say, despite the lack of interest I have in like keeping up with this week to week, you know, specifically chapter by chapter, I... You know, I, I would I would still recommend it. Like, this does have me excited for uh, what other titles ASCII is eventually going to get their hands on exclusively. Like, I'm I'm really interested in seeing like what other titles they end up picking up exclusively for their app. Absolutely. Again, I think this was a really great first pick, and I'm very excited to see what other pickups they'll acquire in the future. Mm-hmm. At the time of this recording, and I'm sure probably by the time this is out, uh, the first like two or three chapters are up. So, you know, if you want to go ahead and uh, check this out, it's on Azuki's app. Uh, we'll obviously leave a link to that and like every series we've talked about on this episode in the show notes for anybody uh, who was interested after hearing us talk about them. But uh, yeah, I, I, I pretty much liked every series we talked about on this episode, or at the very least, there was something I liked about each one of them. Yeah, I mean, I think I have my clear favorites, a lot of the stuff that we talked towards the end of the show, honestly. But like, no, I I think that it was a very nice batch of like different titles to talk about that, again, all had something that stood out about them in appreciable ways. Um, But I think that's going to about do it for our Simulpubs discussion. And uh, Lum, I think we should get into community shout outs. Indeed. So my first community shout out, you know, is tying back to, you know, the In Memoriam Seven at the beginning. And I just wanted to shout out the Colon Cancer Coalition, which, you know, does a lot of work to raise funds and do research on colon cancer and get people, you know, early detection and the treatment they need really help save a lot of lives. And so I just wanted to like shout them out. Like in Billy Kometz's, uh, in his family, like writing his uh, memoriam, they mentioned that, you know, they would appreciate people like, you know, donating to the Colon Cancer Coalition uh, and supporting their work. So definitely, you know, give it a look. And if Billy's work, you know, touched your life and in general, like cancer has affected your life anyway. Like I think it's definitely just in general, it's something to support, you know, it, again, it, the work that they do, uh, the support they give to people does really help save lives. And then for shout outs for, you know, something we were talking on the show, you know, Multiversity Monica Club in their most recent policies episode talked about super smartphones. If you want like other thoughts on the series, also fairly positive thoughts, or at least a little bit middling thoughts. Like, you know, they have some good uh, analysis on it and good thoughts on it. Similarly, they also talked about the end of Ayashima and their kind of frustrations about like the missed opportunities they felt that it had that, you know, I can also appreciate. I think ultimately I also had like kind of that frustrations of like, uh, Ayashima's ending left me wanting because of how good it was so in so much of the rest of it. So I definitely felt a lot of the, the feelings about that there. For other podcast shout outs I want to give, I really enjoyed 
Comic Faithful Player's recent retrospective on Adult Swim Action, celebrating its like 20th anniversary kind of as a block in a sense, and also yeah, in commemoration of like this is Tanami's 10th anniversary of returning on Adult Swim too. So in the sense it's like, you know, the 20th anniversary of like Adult Swim Action as well, but also the, <laughs> the 10th anniversary of when it ended and transitioned into being Tanami. But it was a good retrospective on those years of Adult Swim's anime and action animation output on the network, some of the shows they air that were really notable, and how the block developed over the years, and what defined it as its own distinct flavor from Toonami and the rest of Belt Swim during that time, which I thought was really appreciable. For a talk about like manga that are currently digital only and stuck in digital manga jail, and especially when it comes to Kadansha stuff, Colleen did a great video where they, you know, talked about a lot of manga that are currently digital only from Kadansha that they would really like to see in print, including Shihaifaru and many other great Shoujo Jose titles that, yeah, I definitely agree with all their choices. And hopefully one day they will be let out of that digital jail and be given their print runs, as we hope that a lot of the series that we talked about that are currently digital only like you know Oshinoko or Girls in Light or whatnot would also like get their own uh, you know print releases one of these days and I, I think Oshinoko definitely will but yeah you know I think that fit kind of the vibe we're talking about, like kind of digital manga releases and stuff like we'd like to see in print one day. And then touching on uh, my final like video shout out, I think is actually pretty appropriate to talking about, you know, the super smartphone and uh, the goo 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 search engine thing is uh, John Oliver did a great video on tech monopolies recently and kind of like just how uh, they're kind of really constricting and stagnating growth in the tech industry and also how these monopolies, you know, are recognized against the consumer, particularly talking about a lot of uh, specific examples in regards to Google, especially. So I thought that was a very appropriate kind of example of like, you know, I don't think we want actually these super smartphones. We kind of uncheck searching powers to be distributed nope. to the world. Uh, I don't think we want Google to go in that direction either. So I thought that was like a content-wise, a thematically very appropriate recommendation to kind of give to you if, like, Super Smartphone had put you in the mood to, like, think about that stuff. But yeah, that'll do it for my shout-outs for this episode. You know, a lot of other really great work that's been doing recently that I'll see for future episodes. But for now, I think we'll head into the wrap-up of our show. For sure. Uh, thank you, everybody, so much for listening to this episode of Manga Mavericks. Uh, we really appreciate it. But until next episode, we're going to let you guys know where you could find us, starting with my good friend Lum. Where can the good people find you? You can find me at Lumrayasha on a variety of places like Twitter, Anifrelation, Anilis, Letterboxd, or there's a Lumrayasha. You can find me there by the name. You can read my manga reviews on mangroves.com. We have a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews planning to go out. Look forward to more on there. That's also going to find the other podcast that I host, Lum Squad, the URC Oxra-focused podcast. I do with my good friend, Andrea C. Yushimura, where we discuss a wonderful and wacky world of Mungakashi's classic sci-fi rom-com manga, URC Oxra. And we're having a lot of fun covering Wiz's releases of the manga. We're having a lot of fun going to the movies. Now they're on Crunchyroll, and they're on Blu-ray thanks to Discotech, and we're so excited to talk about the new anime coming out later this fall. We got a lot of plans for the show, a lot of topics we want to discuss, a lot of plans for how we want to cover the new anime, and a lot of future topics. So, you know, if 
you're interested in some classic manga discussion, discussion of like Rumi Takashi's classic work and just like one of the most influential manga comedies that has ever been, you know, definitely listen to Lump Squad and you can follow us on Twitter at Lump underscore squad. And we're on YouTube. You can search for our channel name, Lump Squad, in the search bar. We're also on every podcast platform you can think of. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor, Wheel to Cross Post episodes of Minecraft feed and upload episodes early on the Minecraft's Patreon. And if you enjoy the art I make, the illustrations I do for the our podcast, and the animations and illustrations I make in general, you can find that stuff on my Instagram at SidArts. All right, but as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a lot of my own other podcasts besides this one that you can find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Basically, over there, you can find links to basically whatever I'm doing at the moment, uh, whatever I'm not a part of at the moment, past projects and everything, as well as uh, different guest spots I've had on other shows. So basically, if you want to listen to literally anything else I've been on or I'm a part of, uh, you can find links to all my stuff once again at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. That's where you'll find all my stuff. Um, but as for manga mavericks in particular uh, and where you can find us you can find every episode of the podcast at mangamavericks.com that's where we post every episode first unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks we're at the two dollar tier you will have access to select episodes of the podcast depending on what we have done basically if we happen to have an episode of the podcast edited and it's not time for us to put it up on our main feed just yet we'll put it up on our patreon first at the two dollar tier exclusively for listeners to listen to first um but that also depends on what we have have done at any given point and our schedules and everything uh so really if you want more reliable content you should sign up for a five dollar tier where we post a new bonus podcast at the end of every month uh this month's bonus podcast uh you know if you've been a fan of our uh latest uh podcast going over a lot of akira toriyama's comics uh like his manga theater collection and uh dr slump you know you should go listen to our discussion of his kintoki one shot all the way back from 2010 where we brought on our good friend uh randy from we got a podcast and we basically revisited kintoki and uh you know talked about how we felt about it uh since the very first time we read it all the way back in 2010 10 or 2015 depending on if he had uh the viz shown a jump issue it was in and uh it was a very interesting discussion uh despite how we felt about the one shot kind of coming back to it compared to toriyama's other works it was still a really fun discussion and basically if you want more fun discussions like that you should sign up for our patreon at the five dollar tier at patreon.com slash manga mavericks um it's just in general no matter what tier you guys sign up for we really appreciate your patronage and you know when you sign up for a patreon you know it's really the best way for you guys to support us really helps us keeps the lights on in terms of like our podcast and website hosting once again that's at patreon.com slash manga mavericks uh so sign up if you're interested uh, as for everything else, uh, you could follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks, where we uh, post different excerpts of the podcast, including some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Please subscribe to us. Uh, email us anything at mangamavericks at gmail.com. Uh, do you have any thoughts on any of the sample pubs we covered this episode? Any thoughts on any of the news we covered? Are you reading anything interesting lately? Anything interesting that maybe you want us to talk about on the show? Or you just want to tell us about in general, you know, email us anything about manga, the podcast, or whatever. You know, we love getting emails from you guys. And if you send us an email, we'll read it on the show. So once again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on so many different platforms at this point. Uh, but especially on Apple Podcasts, 
Podcasts and even Spotify. You know, if you leave us a rating and a review, it really helps the visibility of our show. Uh, and just in general, we love getting feedback from you guys, whether it be positive or negative or somewhere in between. Uh, you know, whatever feedback you leave us, uh, we really take it as seriously as possible because we want to use that feedback to make the show that much better. Um, but that is going to be about it for this episode. Uh, once again, this has been episode 205 of the Manga Marks Podcast. We'll see you guys next time for episode 206. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.